Alrighty, here we are. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. Today is November 20th, 2018. The time, 8.15 p.m. Pacific Time. And you may be wondering, why did this not start off with a song? We've started off with a song for quite some time. It's a programming change. We're not going to be starting off with songs anymore. And in fact, uh, pretty soon I'm going to put together some kind of little intro to start the show that will begin with every time instead of a song. So that's why there's no song here. But uh, the good news is that'll cut down the amount of time until you actually get to the main content. In fact, some people don't like the songs I've been choosing. They don't like 1980s music or earlier, which I, I tend to play. So for those people, I guess that's good news. Anyway, this is only the third show we've had since... I came down with LPR and anxiety in the middle of August, which came on very abruptly. And doing radio is a lot tougher for me than it used to be, because of all things for me to get, I have something that affects my throat, which affects my voice box, and obviously makes it very difficult to talk for long periods of time, which is what this show does. So... I used to picture that even if I got pretty sick, even if I was uh, dying, I'd still be doing this show until I was in the ground. But I, I didn't picture that the way I would get sick would be something to have to do with my voice. That's, that's, that's how bad I run. I can't even enjoy this show and do it normally when I'm not feeling right because the thing I have has to do with my voice. <laughs> So, before we get going, I, I'm going to tell you about what's currently happening with me. I get a lot of texts from people asking me, how are you? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Because it's been three years. Or not three years. I hope it doesn't become three years. It's been three months since I came down with these conditions. Just a little bit more than three months ago. Probably, like, I think it was August 16th was the date. And my life changed on that day. Not for the better, for the worse, for the much worse. And it was very surprising. I wasn't expecting something like that to happen. But here it was. Something I wondered at the time was, how did this happen? What caused this? How do I go from feeling normal on August 15th to feeling like there's a lump in my throat that won't go away on August 16th? And then when I try to lie down that night, I feel like I'm choking every time I get in a flat position, which made it very hard for me to sleep. Then five days later, I came down with anxiety and depression. You guys have heard this before on this show, on the last two episodes where I've talked about it. But I wondered what changed in that one day to cause my health to go downhill so much so quickly. I mean, in one day. How does that happen? Most people who have this condition known as LPR can point to something that was a trigger for it to occur. For some people, it was taking antibiotics. For some people, it was having a viral infection like a bad cold. For some people, it was having surgery. Most people can point to something that happened and then the LPR immediately followed and never went away. For me, nothing happened. I hadn't had a cold in three months. 
I didn't have surgery. I hadn't been taking antibiotics in a very long time. It was none of those things. In fact, nothing had happened. It was a very ordinary day otherwise, a very ordinary week otherwise. The only thing otherwise memorable about that week was the day before I was at a all-time high weight and I decided I'm going to go on a diet. Well, the LPR and the anxiety did it for me, mainly the anxiety. And 30 pounds melted off without me trying super fast. And they've pretty much stayed off. I think I've gained like three pounds back, but uh, I lost 30. <laughs> so, and this was without trying. I guess that's the one benefit that came from this. And thankfully, the uncontrolled weight loss has stopped for a while. So I don't think that's going to continue. But it actually might continue for a few weeks uh, into December. And I'll explain. I had an idea to test for something called H. pylori. The H stands for uh, helicobacter but it's known as H. pylori. It's actually a bacteria that lives in your stomach. A lot of people have it. In fact, there's an estimation that half of all Americans have it. So if half of all Americans have it, how come we haven't heard of it? And how come uh, I bothered to test for it? Well, most people are either asymptomatic or they just have some mild symptoms that they don't realize have to do with the H. pylori. But H. pylori has been associated with LPR and reflux in general. It's also been associated with sudden onset of anxiety. I've read reports online of people who got a sudden and quick increase in reflux and a sudden anxiety problem they didn't have before when they had H. pylori. And I said, hmm, that sounds really, really familiar. An anxiety problem I didn't have before. And a very, very quick increase in reflux. So I thought, maybe I should test for this. No doctor suggested this, oddly enough. I went to several doctors. No one suggested it. I found this on my own. And I asked my uh, GI doctor if I can have this test. So he said, okay, and ordered it. And what do you know? I tested positive for H. pylori. So I have it. Now I have to get rid of it. Now H. pylori is not known to cause the majority of LPR cases. That's why they don't really think of it. But it is connected to LPR. They have found that um, people who have H. pylori tend to have reflux problems, including LPR, and especially in cases where it's just a sudden increase. It's not known if H. pylori causes it, but it's suspected that might be the case. And a lot of people have reported that uh, anxiety just springs up out of nowhere for some people with H. pylori. So it's possible that I caught H. pylori sometime in 2018, and then it did this damage, and then for whatever reason on August 16th uh, is when it did its worst damage, and... (laughs) 
caused all these problems. You hear this? Ugh. I'll get to that in a second. That, that's the Skype ring. That's the Skype ring, and there's a reason why you never heard that before, and you just heard that now. Skype uh, forced itself on me. Skype is like the uh, telephonic rapist. It forced itself on me. I'll explain it shortly. But uh, I'm, I'm forced to use a new Skype is what's going on. And and one of the things that I don't like is that uh, all the settings reset. So uh, I'd, I, I guess now all the sound effects are on. I don't want the sound effects. I don't, I don't even know how to turn them off here on the new Skype because it sucks. Maybe I can figure it out during the show. Maybe I can't. But uh, you may have to deal with Skype sound effects. See, there's an audio and video thing. Can I? Is it? See, I. No, it doesn't show how to turn off sound effects. You go to audio and video. There's nothing about sound effects. Microsoft has really ruined Skype. I've said this before, but they really, really have. They really, really have. See, I can't, I can't see how to turn off the sound effects. It's terrible. Maybe there's a way. I don't see how to turn them off. <sighs> All right. So anyway, uh, getting back to the... And, and please, nobody call in right now. I'm not going to take any calls where I'm talking about this. So I'm going to be treating my H. pylori, and the treatment is very difficult. It's two antibiotics. One is a common one, amoxicillin. The other one is clarithromycin, which is not very common. But you have to take them at much higher doses than most people do. And you're taking them together, and you're taking Prilosec at the same time. This is known as the, the triple therapy. A lot of people have a problem with the triple therapy where it basically gives them the equivalent of a really bad flu while they are taking it. Some people have described it as the sickest they've ever been in their life. Other people uh, seem to tolerate it fairly well. Some have some diarrhea, but you know, I, I'm not that worried about that. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about the horrible sound, uh, side effects that I will have to tolerate for two weeks because it's a two-week treatment. So I'm hoping I'm not one of those unlucky people who gets really bad side effects from it. But I I won't know till I try, and once I try, I'm committed to do it because it's not good for you to start antibiotics and quit before you take them all, or otherwise they will not be effective in the future. The other crappy thing is it's not going to get rid of the H. pylori for sure. Some people do them, and then they test for the H. pylori, and what do you know? It's still there. It's a very hard bug to get rid of. Also, some risks that come with it. H. pylori is also thought to possibly do some good things for your body, including preventing esophageal cancer, including preventing reflux from getting as bad. It actually protects your esophagus, some researchers believe. However, its downsides, in addition to what I just said, it causes ulcers, and I actually think I have an ulcer right now, and it causes stomach cancer. 
So some people treat H. pylori only to find that their symptoms get worse or they develop new problems they didn't have before. I really hope I'm not one of those people. Some people treat it and things improve. There have been a few lucky people who have treated it and their LPR has gone away completely. And that's the main reason I'm treating it. So it's going to be tough. And I figured I should do a radio show before I start it because I probably will not be in a condition to do a radio show during those two weeks when I'm on that treatment. Maybe I'll be lucky and the side effects won't be bad and I'll be doing a show on here saying, hey, look, it wasn't bad at all. Here I am. Now, here's another crappy thing. You can't even just try it for two days and say, oh, good, no side effects. I'm out of the, I'm out of the woods. No, there's people who've reported that after a week of doing it, the second week is brutal. Or after three days, it suddenly gets brutal. So they start off, everything's fine, and then it, it, it goes terrible after that. So you, you don't even know. It could just show up and hit you at any time, the, the bad side effects. Yeah, but th- that's the way it is, and I've got to do it. And I talked to my brother about this, who's a cardiologist, but very knowledgeable and good with uh, internal medicine issues. And he said that uh, even though there's some controversy over time about whether you should treat H. pylori or not because of the the good it can do as well. He said that uh, there's since been research in recent years that has validated that it should always be treated if found. It was found that the the bad outweighs the good with H. pylori. So anyway, that's what I'm doing. And by the way, if, if you're feeling ulcer-like issues in your stomach or if you have big problems with reflux or basically anything gastrointestinal I suggest you get an H. pylori test because as hard as H. pylori is to treat it is very easy to take the test there are two types of tests you can do you can do a stool test where you go crap in a plastic bucket and then scoop some of it out. That was very fun to do, <laughs> but at least at least it was easy. It was gross, but easy. And uh, there's also a thing called a breath test you can do. That's not as gross, a little bit tougher, but both tests are easy. So it's not difficult to find out whether you have H. pylori. Now, if you don't have any symptoms, then th- there's no point uh, to go test for it. But if you have anything that kind of resembles ongoing gastrointestinal system symptoms that won't go away, go test for H. pylori. I'm starting to believe it's very much undertreated and undertested for in the United States. And actually not just the U.S., across the world. So even if this is not what's behind the LPR, it's probably better that I get rid of it anyway. So that's what I'll be doing. I'm waiting until after Thanksgiving because I don't want to ruin Thanksgiving with the side effects from the medication. Okay, now Skype. I want to tell you about Skype here. I've been battling with Skype for a long time, as you guys have heard on this show for years. But Skype has finally forced everybody to use their new version. And if you try to refuse, it will not connect for you. So if you want to use Skype, it has to be the new version. I have not really tried out very much for the, of the new version, and one of the unpleasant surprises I just found out was that uh, the sound effects were going on. 
So, uh, and I can't seem to figure out how to turn them off. <laughs> that, that's lousy. And I hope it'll let me connect on uh, co-hosts and callers at the same time. I'm, I'm a little concerned that it may not have a conferencing feature because when I had last tried the new Skype, it did not have a conferencing feature, which is what allows me to connect several people on the line at the same time. So th that'll be crappy if it can't, and then I'll have to find something new to use if Skype really uh, has become incompatible with doing radio shows. So please bear with me with that tonight. Here's the agenda. I guess before I should do the agenda, I should tell you about the free roll. We have a very large free roll tonight. And I want to thank two people for that, uh, Tiger Piper and Eric Benzamokin. The $300 free roll. $300. $150 for first, $75 for second, $40 for third, $25 for fourth, and we even pay fifth place tonight, $10. $150, $75, $40, and $10. Tiger Piper gave $100. Eric Benzamokin gave $200. And we're going to hear from him tonight. He's going to be on the show tonight. We have a segment where we need a lawyer to help us out. We need a lawyer to help interpret a situation. Probably the biggest topic we're going to talk about tonight. So anytime we, we need a lawyer on this show, we, we call up Eric and he helps us. And in fact, uh, when we had him on last time, it was a very, very well-received segment. I got a lot of compliments about that segment. People asked, when is Eric coming on again? So that'll be tonight. He also gave $200, though, for this, as did Tiger Piper gave 100 so that's what makes our $300 prize pool. It takes place on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It's at 8.45 Pacific Time tonight. It's in about 12 minutes. And it's No Limit Hold'em. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which is back up. It is back up. It is working again. If you bookmarked it, you may have to unbookmark it and just go through the Poker Fraud Alert page to get there because the IP address has changed. But... Uh, other than that, it should work. I tested it today. Thank you to Bellybuster for putting it back up. It was down for a while. So it's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. To understand if you qualify for the free money, you must go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. Now here are the phone numbers to call the show. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is our main number. The alternate number... Our Mount Charleston line, 702-430-1808. That's an old 70s rotary telephone, which sits on top of Mount Charleston. 702-430-1808. It forwards to me wherever I go, including this show. So that's a way to reach the show if you want to call Mount Charleston instead of our main 775 number. You can text the show anytime. Text messages before, after, or during the show. 775-372-8355, same as our main phone number. And I will respond to you. Also, we have the call to listen line. That is still up. That's been working overtime because the live show has not been on lately. So that's been doing all the duty. People have still been listening to the radio show by calling up that number since we haven't been live very often. But whether we're live or whether the archives are being streamed, because when we're not live, then it just streams old shows as if they're live. Just picks one at random and does it and then... Does another and does another, does another. 
The Call to Listen Line's phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736, the Call to Listen Line. You can call that from any phone in the world. It does not require the Internet, does not require a smartphone, does not require a computer, doesn't require a data plan, won't use up even one byte of your data, and if you have lousy cell reception, don't worry about it. If you, if you have one bar... No problem. You can call it. It will never buffer. It will never slow down. It has a no buffer guarantee. When you call that number, it will never freeze. It will never buffer. You'll just hear the show playing. It just works. It's better than any kind of uh, streaming method out there. 605-313-0736 is the call to listen line. It's now been up for uh, two years. So... I'm very proud of the call to listen line. I, I did have to change the phone number a few months ago. That That is true. But it's still there. It still runs. Okay, our agenda tonight. Main topic, Gordon Vio. Vio, Vio, I don't know how you say his name. Second place finisher in the 2017 World Series of Poker. I'm talking about the main event. Uh, he's having a, a very embarrassing <laughs> sequence of events all related to a lawsuit that he filed against poker stars involving a tournament he won where they would not pay him. But it turns out that poker stars was in the right and it turns out that he did some things that uh, were not very smart. Not very smart at all. So we're going to talk about the Gordon Vio lawsuit against poker stars follies and we're also going to talk about by the way he's the 2016 runner-up not 2017 but whatever we're going to talk about those follies and we're going to have eric benzamokin on to give his legal opinion of the matter it's an interesting case you may think oh a lawsuit who cares is boring no 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 it's it's actually a very interesting story and you're going to want to hear about this even if you're not normally interested in legal cases involving poker. You'll you'll like this one. Well, here's an update. I'm not going to give it to you yet, but I'm going to give you an update tonight about Tony from Five Dimes, the owner of the Five Dimes Sportsbook, which has been, a, it's been around for like two decades. It's been around a very long time. And we reported on the last show that Tony had died, that Tony was missing since September 24th, and then a few weeks later, after it was reported that he was missing, it was kept silent for a long time, but then when the news got out, about a day or two later, he was found dead. Well, I'm going to give you an update on this, and it's one which might surprise you. Yep, it might surprise you. The story's not over. The two biggest gaming companies in the United States are Caesars Entertainment and MGM. They own a lot of casinos. They have a very big presence in Vegas. What would happen if they merged? Well, we may have to think about that because they may actually do so. There's actually talk of a merger between Caesars and MGM. And during the same segment, I'm going to tell you about the talk of the merger about Caesars and Golden Nuggets, 
that I have an update on that as well. I reported that on a previous show. I have an update to that and a new story about Caesars and MGM possibly merging. And I'll tell you what that will mean for players, the good and the bad. By the way, it would be mostly bad. You don't want it. Nevada has a black book, which is uh, it's a list of names of people who are not allowed in any casinos in the state. There were only 33 names in the black book. The only way out of the black book usually is to die. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, once you're in there, you usually don't get out. You have to do something pretty bad, as you can imagine, uh, with all the different things that have happened in casinos over the many years that uh, Nevada casinos have operated. There's only 33 living people in that black book. Well, make that 35. Two people have been added to the black book over a 2014 craps cheating scheme at Bellagio. I'll tell you about that scheme, and I'll tell you who's in the black book now. Have you ever walked through a casino and seen what's known as a must-hit slot machine? A must-hit slot machine is a variation of a slot machine where there's a jackpot, but the jackpot has to hit before it reaches a certain number. You know how slot machines, jackpots work, where people, every time they spin a a slot machine, they put money in the slot machine and spin it, the meter for the jackpot goes up a little bit. So let's say the jackpot is at uh, 1,815,042.50. You spin the machine once, it may go up to uh, 1,815,042.75. So it, it creeps up a tiny bit. And... Every time people play the slot machine and do not hit the jackpot, it keeps going up, 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 up uh, until it eventually gets hit and then that person wins whatever the jackpot shows. That's how a traditional jackpot works. A must-hit jackpot goes up the same way, except it clearly displays a number which is the highest it can get to. So it's saying that there's no way we will get past this number without hitting at some point. That's called a must-hit. Some players like the must-hit. Because they know that uh, if they play long enough, they'll win the jackpot. So you might think, okay, well, why don't I just always play it? Why, why don't I just, if it's a jackpot that has to hit, I can just play until I hit and then quit. Yeah, that's a good way to make money, right? That's not. Obviously, that uh, the casinos have set the machine to where the vast majority of people lose. So I'll explain all the truths that uh, you probably would want to know about must-hit slot machines. I tried one myself. I made some mistakes. I will tell you what mistakes I made and how I won't make them again. And if you want to try playing them, you can try. These have been around for years, by the way. It's not a new thing. But I, I tried it myself, so I want to tell you about must-hit slot machines. And maybe you can uh, you can try one next time you're in a casino under the right conditions. Here's something you may not know. Here's something I didn't know till recently. If you have earned points from your play in Nevada casinos, I'm, I'm only talking about Nevada here. Every state's different. But in Nevada, if you, you've earned points from your play and then the points are taken away from you because you're kicked out or to punish you in some way, unless you were cheating or unless the points were misawarded in some way, Casinos are not allowed to do this, and you can go to Nevada Gaming to get them back. 
So I'll tell you a bit more about that. And it's something to, a piece of knowledge to keep in your back pocket in case this ever happens to you. There have been people I've known who have lost points that have been taken away by casinos when they've been banned or, or no offered or something like that. And they just think, okay, well, the casino can do what it wants. In Nevada, they can't. And there's a way you can fight it. People have asked me to give periodical updates, or periodic, not periodical, periodic updates on the legal sports betting landscape in the United States since the federal ban preventing states other than Nevada from having sports betting has been lifted. So states are trying to quickly get online and offer legal sports betting. When I say online, um, I don't mean online like the internet, though some are trying that too. But I'm, I'm going to give you an update. There's two new states that have started taking sports bets. There are now seven states where you can legally bet on sports in the U.S. And a few more that seem to be close to getting there. Greektown Casino is the third largest casino in the Detroit area. It has been sold for a lot of money. A lot of money to Penn National Gaming and Vici Properties. Now, what is Vici Properties? That's V-I-C-I in all caps. What is Vici Properties? We've talked about them before. You may have forgotten what they are. I'll tell you about what Vici Properties is and what Penn National Gaming is and how much Greektown Casino sold for. Finally, I went to a World Series game again. Second one I ever went to in my life. The first one was last year. It was the 18-inning game, the epic 18-inning game where the Dodgers beat the Boston Red Sox 3-2. to two. Crazy game, and I was there with my son. It was a 7-hour and 20-minute game and the longest ever played in Dodgers Stadium history. Not just the longest World Series game, which it was too. The longest game ever played in Dodger Stadium in the history of that stadium. So talk a bit about that experience. So that's our agenda tonight. And let's see if we can reach our co-hosts on this crappy new version of Skype. I, I must admit that I, I'm a little concerned. I'm a little concerned that uh, this is not going to be easy. But I'm going to try. So let's try uh, try CalWatt first. See if we can reach CalWatt. CalWatt may be on tonight. He may not be. Not sure if he's still awake. He said he was very tired. He woke up early. See, I, this is pissing me off. I can't even find... can't find Calwan on this new thing. Let's see here. Okay, here. I found Calwan. He's probably not there. We're going to try to call him. Watch, you're going to hear all this obnoxious sound effects. Here we go. Yeah, see? I don't want that to be heard. Sounds like a beacon. Yeah, that's telling me that Cal Watt's not online. He probably fell asleep, but who knows? He may go and get up to the bathroom. Let's try Trey Ruski. Let's try Trey Ruski. By the way, I'm looking to see if we can turn off sound effects here. 
Someone wrote this on a Microsoft uh, help board. Deers, please help me. I think they start off with Deers. Deers, D-E-A-R-S. Please help me to turn off sound for incoming Skype messages. I've turned off in the Skype settings the in-app sounds. However, Skype plays the sound for incoming messages. Yeah, like I, I totally... But see, see, it says go to... You've got to select your profile picture. Now, how, how counterintuitive is that? <laughs> you, you have to click on your profile picture to start doing this. Okay, so click on your profile picture. Application settings. Where is that? See, I don't see application settings. This is so awful. I see settings. No, this brings me to the same place. And it says notifications. Okay, here, notifications, and click... Um, I was already there. Okay, chat notifications, reactions. See, that's but that's not sound effects. That's notifications. This this is really the worst. Someone says, "I want the notifications for the messages. I just don't want the stupid sound effect." Not everybody is twelve years old. Exactly. Exactly. This is such a terrible program. Micro, it used to be a good program, and Microsoft just ruined it. Microsoft ruined it very badly. Okay, we're going to try to reach uh, Trader Ruski here. I just... This bothers me of how bad the new Skype is. And there's no way around it. You have to use it. All good things come to an end. Let's try to put him on here. See, I don't want to hear this. Sounds like it worked. It, well, it worked to connect you, but uh, I th- now let's see. Can we add another person? I think we actually can. Okay, so we actually can add another person. That's good. I, I don't see how you can turn off sound effects, though. Do you know how? No clue. Yeah, I have no clue either. This is really a joke. Yeah, I can't find. I can't figure it out. I think. I think they didn't give you a way to do it. I think I'm going crazy. I think there's no way to turn off sound. Well, you guys gonna have to put up with it. it it's kind of tilting me. I'll be honest. But uh, and I'm gonna really try to figure this out before the next show. But we'll just have to put up with the sound effects tonight. Okay. So thank you for coming on, Trader Risky. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Yeah, and we're going to talk about uh, the Gordon Vio lawsuit. And let me check if uh, Eric Benzamokin is ready so we can get him on here and discuss the whole thing. And just texting him right now. That's why the pause there. So here's what happened. Uh, first of all, let's go all the way back to April 15, 2011, better known as Black Friday. That is when the U.S. clamped down on poker stars, UB, and Full Tilt, and busted them all for operating a real-money poker site illegally in the U.S. Poker stars stayed up, but they immediately excluded all U.S. players, where you could only play as an American if you were physically standing in another country. And I think you'd have to have them enable your account to do so. 
So they were doing that in order to get the U.S. off their back. And to further get the U.S. off their back, they paid a $750 million fine to settle the entire thing. Some of which was used to pay back the players who were stolen from uh, Full Tilt and later from UB. That's where the money came from, was from poker stars paying the government $750 million worth of a fine. To this day, except in New Jersey, which has a separate poker stars called Poker Stars New Jersey, but you don't have the same player pool. It's just a localized player pool there for only people who play in New Jersey. Uh, you cannot play poker stars in the U.S. However, being the biggest online poker site and being the one with the best support and best software, of course, a lot of Americans still wanted to play on it. So people came up with the idea, hey, I don't feel like moving to Canada or Mexico or somewhere else to play on poker stars. That's too much of a pain in the ass, or it may even be impossible if you have kids or something else where you just can't leave. But I know what I'll do. I'll just get a VPN. I'll get a VPN, and I will use that to connect to PokerStars, and it will show I'm in Canada, and then I don't have to physically go to Canada, and they'll, they'll never figure it out. Ha ha ha. I always thought that was a foolhardy plan for a few reasons. First of all, PokerStars can detect, in some cases, if you're connecting through a VPN. Number two, you don't know what poker stars can see on your computer. Poker stars might be able to see a lot more than you think it can. So it might be able to see that you're connected through a VPN. They, they may have put uh, some countermeasures in there within the software to basically spy on what you're doing. And they can catch you that way. And then the biggest problem is if you are caught they will confiscate your money. And there's really no one you can take it to to get that undone other than PokerStars itself. So if they've decided they're taking your money, you're screwed. They're just taking your money. They're, they're regulated by the Isle of Man, which it, it's pretty much one of these uh, Mickey Mouse regulation jurisdictions. You're not going to get a fair hearing over there. So... Basically, whatever PokerStars wants to do with your account and with your money, they can do. Now, why are they doing this? Why, why do they take away people's money for being caught using a VPN to illegally play from the U.S.? Why does PokerStars care so much? Well, because PokerStars wants to stay in the good graces of the United States government so they can eventually offer legalized online poker in more states than just New Jersey. They want to be part of the eventual U.S. legalized online poker market. And for that reason, it's much more important for them to keep the U.S. off their back than it is to get a few extra players who are going to get in through VPNs. Additionally, they don't even want these type of players. Poker stars, as you've seen over the years, we've talked about it on this show, They've been pushing away the pros. The pros aren't banned from playing on there, but if you're a winning player, they really don't want you. They really want the player who's either break-even or losing. The winning players they don't like because they actually take money out of the poker economy. 
even when the winning players pay rake, that's not really helping poker stars because poker stars, they're, they're already generating plenty of rake. What they need is the money that's been deposited there to stay on the site. As I've described before with poker stars and for all online poker sites, it's a bit different than a live card room in how they make money. It's both through rake, but one a little different than the other. And it actually really changes the way that they want to do business. If you go to a live card room, you sit down, you buy in for whatever amount you want to buy in. And when you leave, you cash out whatever you have left. If you cash out more than you came with, you won. If you came out less, if you cash out less than you came with, you've lost. But the bottom line is you don't, go, you don't just go carry uh, you know, three racks of chips back to your car. What you do is whatever chips you have, you go to the cashier and cash them out. Eh, a few people will convert them to big chips and save them for later so it's easier to buy in at the higher stakes. But for the most part, you know, a very high percentage of people in card rooms will fully cash out every session at the end. So how does the card room make money? I'm talking about the live card room, not poker stars. The live card room makes money by taking the rake out of each pot to where at the end of the night the chips that are cashed out there's a lot fewer of those than what was bought in because a lot of chips went down the drop for the rake and those are never cashed out by players because the casino keeps them so they're making the rake immediately is what I'm saying with online poker it's different online poker they get their money when people deposit that's the only way they get money. Think about it. They, the only way they actually get money is when people deposit. So to have a constant cash flow, they need the deposits rolling in on a consistent basis. So people who just consistently cash out and don't deposit are not helping them. Sure, they may be technically raking their winnings, but they're actually sending checks to these people or bank transfers or however, however they're cashing out. They're, they're sending money to these people on a regular basis, and these people are not sending any money to them. So the way online poker sees it is, hey, these people are taking money from us. If they weren't here, this money would still be on the site, and it would still be cycling around to be raked. And that's the big difference because live card rooms, the money is not cycling around because people will cash it out and take it back home. On online poker sites, the money is actually sitting online until taken back off. So if Joe Average Player shows up, buys in for 1000 uh, and cashes out uh, 1075 but uh, let's say he was person. The pots he won were per- was raked uh, fifty dollars while he was there. The-, the casino still made fifty dollars, even though he's leaving with more money than he came with. That money came from someone else. So still, fifty dollars worth of chips were taken out of the pots he won and dropped into the casino's box, to where they don't have to cash out that money at the end of the night. And then when Joe, average player, goes home with that thousand seventy-five dollars. You don't know what he's going to do with it. He might spend it on something. Uh, he, he may lose it in another casino. 
He might uh, put it away in his bank. You, you don't know what he's going to do. He may put it on his mattress. The, the point is that money's not cycling around the card room anymore. Once, once Joe, average player, walks out, it's not cycling there anymore. It's, uh, the money's actually gone. It's actually gone from the casino. Online poker sites, the money's not gone until someone actually hits cash out and receives the money. And the reason I'm giving you this little uh, lecture about this is so you understand that online poker rooms do not want winning players. The only way they kind of want them is if they're kind of dead and they need them to start games. Then they need them. Because the the average fish is not going to sit there for hours by himself at a table waiting for someone to sit down. That's what a pro will do, and that's how games get going. But if you're an active site like PokerStars, you don't need these guys. And they realize that. So... Let's get back to Gordon Veo and his lawsuit and what happened. He was using a VPN. He admits he was using a VPN. There's there's no question he was using a VPN. However, he claims that he just always uses a VPN. That even when he you know, when he's in Canada, he uses a VPN. Doesn't really explain why, but he just he just claims he just always uses one. Which is all he can really say, by the way, if he caught using it. He's like, oh, yeah, so I always use. <laughs> Not like, a, oh, I just use this in the U.S. to pretend uh, that uh, I'm in Canada. And, th- and the reason he does, quote, always use the VPN is because it would look suspicious if sometimes he's on a VPN and sometimes not. So if he's really in Canada or somewhere else he can play, he plays using a normal IP. And then uh, when he's in the U.S., he's playing on the VPN. They're going to say, oh, okay, well, why is he only using this VPN sometimes? So a lot of the players, they just use the VPN all the time when they play, even if they're in a place temporarily where they can play, just so it all stays constant. So Gordon Veo won a high roller tournament, I think one of the scoops. He won, I think, for uh, it was $600,000. But he was not playing from Canada like he was pretending he was playing. Now, I think it was a multi-day event, and uh, it's, it's uh, whatever it was. I'm forgetting the exact details, but bottom line is they detected that he was in the U.S. And they confiscated his money. So he sued them. And he claimed he was in Canada the entire time. And did, and did they do that technically, Truff, or is it, did they just know he was there through other means? If you're on a VPN, they no, can't no, detect it, right? I, I think there were some mistakes that allowed them to detect it. Uh, I, I think also they, they were just suspicious of the VPN. I'm trying to think of the exact details. See, when this first... Uh, happened. By, by the way, uh, Saw24 is saying uh, it, it works if your VPN never drops. They can't just detect a VPN. Uh, that's false. The problem is, is, is that connections will drop uh, so you almost always get caught because VPNs aren't perfect. What he's, he's trying to say is that uh, the, the VPN can stop working and then it'll connect back on your regular connection. I think that is what actually happened with Gordon Veo. But they actually can detect it. First of all, they can detect it through the IP. If they, if they have a list of IPs of known VPNs, then yes, they can detect it just from that. Second, uh, there's a lot they can do to spy on your computer. You, you may not think that they can, but they can. So you have to watch out for that. You, you, you can't just uh, say 
stars can only see what I show them. Stars can see a lot more than you think. That's why people running bots get caught. That's why people running a lot of things they shouldn't be running get caught. Is because star and stars is never going to admit this. They're never going to say, "Oh yeah, we're we're, spy- we're totally spying all over your computer." They're not going to admit, "Hey, we're uh, we're seeing a lot of things that you'd be upset about us seeing." But they can. It's technically possible for them to do it, and I believe they do it. I don't have proof they do it, but it's technically possible. And for this sum of money, it's not worth taking the risk. Uh, Saw24 is saying, uh, if you're not running it through a program, uh, I, he's, I, I have friends that still play on there today from the U.S. Well, that's because they haven't been caught yet. Gord Vale was playing from the U.S., and he only, they only looked into it more carefully when he won a large tournament. So, uh, I, would, uh, I wouldn't advise this. I'm not saying you can't get away with it for some time. I'm saying that at any point the hammer can come down, and the hammer might come down when you finally go on that big win streak or, or win that big tournament you've always been wanting to do. That's what happened to, to Gordon Vale. So he got caught, uh, and, and he filed a lawsuit against them to attempt to... And this was back in 2017, by the way, when he got, uh, when this happened. So th- this has been going on for a while. It really wasn't heard about until May of 2018 when uh, when, he, when this lawsuit was made public. So um, the, the lawsuit documents were made public. I had read them at the time back in May. And, and what Gordon claimed in his lawsuit was that he was always using a VPN, as I said, and that he was using the VPN when he won that scoop event. He also claimed the VPN, quote, malfunctions and shows him in the U.S. when he really isn't, as SA24 was just saying in chat. And and what that malfunction really is, by the way, is is, is the VPN cuts out and then your computer just grabs its, uh, its normal connection. So, but he claimed this was a malfunction, that the VPN was erroneously showing him in the U.S. Because it is true, some of these VPN services allow you to choose where it will show that you are from. You can actually select, okay, I, I want to I be connecting through a Canadian IP. I want to connect through a German IP. So I think what he's trying to say is that it just malfunctions sometimes just shows him with a U.S. IP when he's really not there. The whole thing's kind of ludicrous because he doesn't even explain why he connects on a VPN. Like, why use one? Why would you need to use one for for PokerStars? I guess he can claim it's added security, but they they know what's going on. You're not going to convince them. You're not dealing with idiots there. They they know why people, why poker pros are using VPNs to play on their site. And it's because they're playing for a jurisdiction where it's otherwise not allowed to play. They know it. They know that 100% of them who are using VPNs are doing it for that reason. Especially if they're poker pros. If it's just some random fish who happens to leave his VPN on after he, you know, after he used it for work, fine. But I, I'm talking about poker pros who are always connected on VPNs. 100% of the time, these guys are doing it to, do, to dodge the restrictions on where they can play from. And PokerStars knows that. So you can BS them all you want. They know. So Veo tried to sue them to at least uh, maybe get the court to force them to pay. 
Also interesting in his lawsuit was that he he did not contend that he never played on stars from the U.S. using that VPN. He was careful not to say that. He didn't say, oh, I've never done this. I've never played from stars in the U.S. Never happened since Black Friday. Never used this VPN to ever go on from the U.S. Just this one time when I won $600,000, I was in Canada the whole time. (laughs) So he, he, he was careful. Now, he didn't admit that he has played from the U.S. before. In the, in the court documents, but he also did not say that he didn't, which would be a big thing you'd say if if you really hadn't done it. If you if you really had never played from the U.S. when you weren't supposed to, you would say so. You wouldn't say, well, this time I didn't do it. We're not talking about other times, just this time I didn't do it. The other times we're not going to talk about. That, that's basically what the, the legal document was saying, which was interesting. I think maybe he was afraid this opens him up to too many... Uh, ways they can question it, which I'll get to shortly. At first, I actually thought that even though I knew he was breaking the rules, that uh, that legally he's probably in the right is what I thought back in May, and I posted this. I said the I said the this is what I said on May ninth. <coughs> I said the burden of proof should be on stars to show that he was in the U.S. when he won. If they can't prove that, they need to pay him. Instead, it seems like they put the burden of proof on him to show that he was really in Canada when he won because they found likely correct evidence that he had played from the U.S. at other times. Rather than admit that they were simply suspicious but lacked proof against him, stars seems to have taken the position that they detected him in the U.S. during part of the scoop and then demanded that he prove otherwise. This is what Charter, Christian Harder, said about it at the time. I have a feeling that Gordon was in Canada for that tournament and possibly VPN either before or after that time, and that's the issue. Stars is going to use that against him, even if he was physically in Canada for that that win. It was 700K, by the way, not 600K. So, at the time, most people were on Gordon's side, thinking that either... He really was in Canada, and stars just detected him in the U.S. at other times, and were trying to use that against him not to pay him, or that he really was in the U.S., but they didn't really have any proof. They were just suspicious and decided to confiscate the money anyway. Now, by the way, I want to say that they don't keep the money. They redistribute this to other winners. So they don't gain from this, but... At the time, it was thought maybe they're being overzealous about confiscating people's money who rightfully want it. Even if they don't keep the money, maybe they're being overzealous about this because of their fear of the U.S. government giving them a hard time. Now, another problem with this lawsuit is the fact that it took place in the Central District of California, in a federal court there. Well, PokerStars Terms of Service require that the venue, the legal venue involving any kind of legal matters, take place in the Isle of Man where they're located. Now, they can, they can claim that all they want, but they can't force that. But then uh, the judge, or not the judge, sorry, but then the alleged wrongs here that happened against Veo actually happened in Canada. If he's correct, you know, he's saying he played in Canada and won 
and they wouldn't pay him. So you would think he either has to sue them in Canada or sue them in the Isle of Man where they're located. I don't see where California has to do with this. So that was back in May, okay? I don't remember if we talked about it in the show or not. Maybe we talked a little bit, whatever. But we got a big update. Big update to this story that makes it a lot more interesting. And before we give you that update, I'm going to put on Eric Benzamokin. We're going to make our first call on the new Skype. And I'm praying this works. Because if it doesn't, I'm, I'm going to be very unhappy. Very, very unhappy. think it'll work, but you never know with new Skype. Shows it's calling. Can you still hear Trader Risky? Yep. Okay, good. You're still here. We haven't lost you. Now we just need Eric to answer and we'll be good. Hello? Eric! Hello! Hey! Alright, works. So, so Eric, by, by the way, uh, can you hear Trader Risky? Trader Risky, talk. What's what's happening, Eric? Hey, how are you? Yes, All right, good. So, so we, how you doing? Now here's the big test. Can you guys hear this sound effect? What was that? I didn't hear anything. Ah, damn it! That was a blank. I knew it. I knew. I, I knew there was no way this was going to work perfectly. All righty. Well, Skype's a piece. You guys are going to have to do without sound effects. But anyway, we're going to go on and uh, discuss this here. So there's been a new update to this whole thing after people kind of forgot about it a little bit for the last six months. A, a big new update to the whole thing. And the biggest part of the update is that the case has been dismissed. But it's a lot more than that. Why is it dismissed? Why is it because of the jurisdiction? Well, not just that. Apparently, Gordon Veo claimed that he had proof that he was in Canada. Now, how does one provide proof that they're in Canada? Well, you, know, you, you can't just say, uh, you know, I picked up an accent while I was there. Uh, I, was in, I was playing the tournament, eh? You can't you can't do that. That's not going to prove anything. So the way you can prove you're in Canada is by submitting documents that show you were there. So apparently, in May of 2018, uh, he submitted some documents to PokerStars. I don't believe these were directly submitted to the court, but I think they were submitted to PokerStars that proved, supposedly, that Gordon was in Canada. These were... Bank documents, which showed bank transactions that took place in Canada. And phone records that showed that he used his phone while in Canada. So these were submitted to PokerStars to prove that he was in Canada on the day this all occurred. And that would have been great if the documents were not forged. Yes, uh, apparently Gordon Veo forged documents to be evidence that he was in Canada when he had this win. Now, 
How does PokerStars know this? They know this in a few ways. First of all, the forgeries were apparently very poor, and there were some mistakes made. Like the bank statements where numbers don't add up. That's, that's not very good. If you, if you, if you're gonna, here's a tip for everybody, for all the, the criminal masterminds out there listening to this show. If you're going to submit forged documents to people, make sure the numbers add up. If you, if you, change, if you delete something from your bank statement, let's say, let's say you delete a $100 transaction that you don't want people seeing, then you have to subtract 100 or you have to add, depending on if it's a debit of 100 then you have to add 100 back to your final balance, or otherwise it won't add up. It's a lot of work, but you've got to make sure a bank statement always adds up. That's the whole point of a bank statement. So you, can, you see a starting balance, you see an ending balance, you see all the transactions in between, and, and it should all add up properly if you bust out a calculator. If they don't add up, then something's wrong. And if someone sends you a bank statement with numbers that don't add up, then it is a forgery. So that was one problem. But uh, the other problem is that either Gordon was shooting his mouth off or the forger was shooting his mouth off because some third party, this person's not been identified, but some third party knew about the forgery and went to PokerStars and told PokerStars, hey, uh, you know that Gordon Vale case? Um, those, he sent you some documents, right? Well, those documents are forged. They're fake. And his PokerStars like, oh, that's, well, that's interesting. Um, how do you know this? And he says, well, I know the name of the forger. Here, here, here's the info of the forger. Go talk to him. So PokerStars talked to the forger, and it's not clear to me how or why, but uh, the forger decided to work with PokerStars, even though Gordon Vale had paid him to do this job. Uh, the forger cooperated and admitted that he forged those documents for, uh, for Gordon Vale. And then, just in case Gordon Vale wants to try to claim, oh, well, you know, these people are making up stories. No one forged documents for me. I, you know, these guys are just talking trash about me. That's not true. Well, the documents were not, uh, as I said, things didn't add up. The document, the forgeries weren't even good to where they could show that these documents couldn't have been real. So th- that's, uh, that's it's unbelievable <laughs> that this has occurred. And that he tried to do this, and that he actually hired a forger who didn't forge it correctly. Gordon didn't bother to check the documents. If I was forging documents like this, and I hired someone to do it, I would be so freaking nervous about this. I would be going over it about 20 times to make sure everything added up. I would be so terrified that that even a small mistake was made and would be caught. But uh, apparently Gordon didn't, and... That resulted in uh, between that and the, and the people uh, calling him out. It uh, that was that. So uh, one of the things that happened was that the documents, uh, the numbers didn't add up properly on the account summary. There was like. Uh, like they changed some of the numbers, but not others. But uh, they they had what was a. I don't know how they got. It. Maybe they got it from the forger. But they had actually the original and the forged document, and they showed them. Uh, PokerStar showed them. And on the bank statement, the numbers just did not add up. The, the especially the there, there's a thing at the top saying uh, account summary, beginning balance, total deposits and credits, total withdrawals and debits total checks paid, 
and the numbers didn't add up right. So they they showed the two. They showed the original one, and then they showed the second one, where the numbers weren't right when you add them together. And that's that's basically what occurred. Uh, also, there were some ATM fees charged. At a, like supposedly he used an ATM in Ottawa, in Canada. But there were some ATM fees shown that also weren't correct. So they, they went through these carefully. After, after they were told, hey, these are forgeries, they went through them and proved they were forgeries. And at that point, uh, Gordon Veo's counsel bailed on him. They claimed they didn't know. I don't know if they knew or they didn't, but they claimed they didn't know. They bailed on him. And then he got uh, new attorneys... But um, now Gordon is on the hook for uh, attorney's fees and costs. And, and I'll let Eric explain. So wh- why, is, why is he going to be on the hook for attorney's fees and costs here uh, since, they, since they dismissed the case? Because, all right, so by dismissing the case, that essentially makes PokerStars what's called the prevailing party. At least that's the argument they're going to use. Or they're going to argue that the lawsuit was frivolous to begin with. And then when you file something frivolously in federal court, there's something called Rule 11 uh, in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, which essentially allows sanctions to be imposed or, or you know, costs awarded to the party that, is, you know, that brings bullshit lawsuits, so to speak, or, you know, lies in their pleadings or, other, you know, there's a couple of different standards for it. Um, so... Gordon himself, my, my understanding is that he's looking at around 300000 in legal fees that he may have to pay to poker stars. Yeah. So, it's, so basically, in, if, it, if there's uh, an attorney's fees clause in a contract, or in this case, a terms of service, then the prevailing party could be responsible for those attorney's fees or it could be as a part of a sanction. And I, I read something about that uh, when this was dismissed, they actually uh... – it, it had something to do with whether it was dis- dismissed with prejudice or without prejudice that, that caused this as well. Yeah. So when you when a when a case is dismissed voluntarily by the plaintiff or the party that initiates the lawsuit, because that's the only one that can voluntarily dismiss a case. Obviously, yes. otherwise every defendant they get sued would try to dismiss. So when a plaintiff dismisses a lawsuit uh, voluntarily, they there's a box they check saying with or without prejudice. With prejudice means they can never refile the same lawsuit against the same parties again. Without prejudice means essentially they keep those, you know, they keep their options open in the event that they find additional evidence or they track down the one guy they couldn't serve or whatever the reason. You know, there's a bunch of different reasons why people dismiss without prejudice. Sometimes they dismiss without prejudice because they've settled the case quickly. The uh, the defendant decides they're going to settle and pay up, and so they dismiss it without prejudice in the event that he you know, uh, doesn't make the payments or breaches it or something like that. So they can always go back in and refile a lawsuit if they have to. So, so what does that have to do with this here? I, I read something about it, the fact that I think they dismissed it uh, without prejudice and that allowed poker stars to get in the door to, to, to then sue him for the fees. No, it's the opposite. If they dismiss with prejudice, that's essentially conceding that they're no longer going to, they're not the prevailing party. They lost. If they dismiss without prejudice, that means they kept the door open to refile the lawsuit later, and so they wouldn't be a prevailing party because so, but which, it was never which, really. Which issue. way was this dismissed here? 
So I think it was dismissed with prejudice. Well, actually, it was a voluntary dismissal. So even if it was dismissed without prejudice, poker stars will have to file either in the Isle of Man. Um, I doubt they would do it here in Los Angeles. So they would file in their home jurisdiction. And they would essentially file uh, a, a lawsuit, a counter lawsuit against Gordon Veo, seeking their fees and costs for having to defend the frivolous lawsuit. And what they're going to do is they're going to use this evidence that they've gathered of forged documents, because even if those documents were never introduced into the case filed in Los Angeles, if they were used to try to uh, convince PokerStars to pay out because he was actually in Canada and not on a VPN or on a VPN but in Canada um, and allowed to play, and that was done so essentially fraudulently, you know, so... That's where the basis of the of the additional attorney's fees would come in, uh, you know, attempting to use fraudulent or forged documents to gain a release of nearly three quarters of a million dollars. Okay, yeah, I was and I was seeing here, by the way, with the the, the evidence that they used to figure out. Uh, first of all, they had both copies of the original and the forgery from the forger, but uh, there were uh, one of the interesting things they caught was that it supposedly he was making ATM withdrawals from Ottawa for round numbers of like 100, 200, 300 and then uh and then there would be a $3 charge on top of that for using the ATM. So it would it would show debits from his account of of 103, 203, 503, etc. But something that they didn't think of when they did this was that he was doing this in Canada Allegedly, you know, he's supposedly withdrawing this in Canadian dollars, and yet it's debiting his American account in U.S. dollars. <laughs> so, you know, if you if you withdraw uh, five hundred three Canadian, or you withdraw five hundred Canadian dollars from Ottawa, and get charged a three dollar fee, then that would be five hundred three Canadian dollars, and it would show up on your bank account of whatever that translates to. It wouldn't show up as 503 U.S. dollars, but that's the way it was showing up every time. So that right there is, is – uh, and every time it's a round number. It's not like – and also in ATM, you can't withdraw uh, odd numbers. You can't, you can't decide I'm going to withdraw from the ATM uh, you know, uh, $106.12. You, you can't do that. So it has to be multiples of 20. But every time he was withdrawing it, – it's showing he had these round number withdrawals plus $3 from a Canadian ATM, which would have been impossible. So that right there, that, that was a good catch they had there. And then, but at least there you could say, okay, yes, that was a mistake, but you could see how they could have made it. But they didn't even have the numbers add up correctly, as I was saying in the account summary. And it, it's, yeah, it, I, I, I heard some of the same things, but I, I also heard that some additional evidence that they had sort of on tap that they were going to wait and use either during the Gordon's deposition or as part of the evidence they were going to submit at trial if we got that far. Uh, he had also, my understanding is he'd had this person, this forger, create a fake ISP bill, um, you know, showing like his internet service provider out of Canada. Um, and there was another one, now, it, it's, it's slipping my mind, but he had, he had forged an additional document, oh, some wire transfers uh, back and forth, try, trying to show where he was in, in a Canadian bank transferring funds to, you know, his sister or something. Yeah. And I think that's where the main discrepancy was, the wire amounts, were different on two separate statements, but they were supposed to be from the same transaction or something like that. Um, so all around, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, like you initially, I felt that 
poker stars was either trying to make an example of him or because I also think that when people are paying playing, you know, five cent, ten cent, I don't think poker stars gives a shit if they're on a VPN or not. Uh, and I think it probably happens a lot, you know. And I also think that for these small, you know, buy-in tournaments or these small cash games, I don't think they bother checking or investigating either. I do think it's normal that if it's a seven-figure score, of course they're going to investigate. I think that's what happened. Um, but I think that the VPN use goes on all the time. I just think it's convenient for them not to, you know, not to worry about it at those micro stakes. Um, but essentially what's happening is PokerStars is doing the U.S. government's job for it by, by sort of self-regulating, you know, on behalf of the, essentially on behalf of the government in order to keep the door open for future regulation. Yeah. Um, the thing is here, they're, they're kind of required to do this the same way that uh, casinos are required to keep miners out of there. So, um, yeah, the casino basically to keep their license intact and to prevent from being fined. If they they have to do somewhat of a reasonable job at at detecting and getting miners off the property. So so if there's a, you know if there's the occasional miner that, that slips by that that you know a guy a guy who's 15 and looks 25 and they they don't catch him, uh, they typically won't get in trouble or even get fined. However, if they, if if there seems to be a chronic problem with with miners, especially ones that look like miners that are uh, you know in these casinos and are repeatedly caught uh, repeatedly not ejected or, or caught by the casino then they can get in trouble they can lose their license they can get fined and, and this has happened before so i think poker stars i think the us even though they're not operating in the us as you said to maintain themselves in the us's good graces uh they they basically say we're not, we're not allowing americans to play here anymore which is the reason we got in trouble back in 2011, and if we had someone, we're, we're going to kick him out. So the question is, how far do they have to go to figure this out? There, there's only so many resources they are expected to have to expend. Like they don't, they're not required to, to do a massive investigation of each player on the site to figure out what they're playing. But at the same time, uh, they have to have some means in place to prevent. Uh, people playing there without being detected. They, 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 you can't just, uh, if they make it too easy, there'll be too many people doing it. So they have to, it, it, the government has to be of the belief that uh, PokerStars is putting out reasonable effort to prevent this. Uh, and, and I think, but as far as who they go after, first of all, I think the VPN usage is probably only going on by the pros. I don't think many fish are, are bothering with that. Fish don't like to put a lot of effort out to play poker. That's the first thing. The second is that I, I do agree that they concentrate on the larger scores, and I think the reason they concentrate on the larger scores is I think they're afraid of that would be the biggest embarrassment. That would be if uh, you know Gordon Vale won seven hundred thousand playing the, one of the big scoops on there, and then the word starts to get around. Hey, you know, uh, Go- you know, Gordon Vale was really playing in the U.S. You know, he won the, He's totally VPNing, and Stars doesn't even care. They're not even catching it. So you can totally play there and win tons of money. Like if, they, if that starts getting around. Then poker stars could look very bad to the government, and, and so they've got to they've got to really scrutinize those to where any kind of high profile win they have to make sure is on the up and up. And that was a high profile win, and that's that's why I think it was stupid of him to play tournaments on there, because uh, if you're playing cash, then you can cash out fairly aggressively. And if they eventually cash you, okay, you can you can say that was worth the risk. You can say that you know maybe finally getting your money confiscated at the end, they, they can't take away all the money you've already cashed out. But with tournaments, really the, your main cash outs from tournaments will not be from the min caches you're getting. The, the cash outs you'll be doing from tournaments are when you hit big scores. So why are you playing a high 
limit scoop event where if you win, which of course is the best case scenario for you, that they're going to scrutinize it and take the money away from you. <laughs> so uh, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't there. You, you either lose or, or you win and they take the money. So this was, I didn't think this was smart in the first place to play something like a tournament where uh, the main time you're going to be cashing out is where a large sum of money lands in your lap and, and they may not let you because they may catch it. But it amazes me this forgery of how bad it was to not even add up numbers right. I'm looking at one of the forged statements and would you believe that the ending balance, and this is of his bank account, not a credit card, the ending balance of now on his statement is negative twenty nine thousand. <laughs> that, that's the forgery. So they they couldn't. They, how do you finish with a negative twenty nine thousand dollar bank balance? How does that even happen? What he wrote a huge check and they covered it and then they uh, and then it bounced. I I don't know. I mean that, that's crazy. They couldn't even keep the minus away from where it shouldn't have been. So this was a very poor quality forgery, and it's amazing that Veo didn't check this himself. It's not like he submitted uh, you know, 500 pages of documents. There weren't that many submitted to where he, he could have taken like an hour to go over all these, and that would have been that. Uh, he could have kicked it back to the forger and said, hey, these are a mistake. Also... How does this end up getting out? Was was Veo shooting off his mouth, or was the forger shooting off his mouth? How how does it happen where a third party finds out about this and then tells Poker Stars? Uh, I, I think yeah, I think it was the forger. He was tracked down, and then I think he sort of let the cat out of the bag at that point. But I said that a third party went to Poker Stars and told them about the forger and, and identified him, and then they went to the forger, and then he then he spilled the beans. So it was like there was some third person who knew about this. Who went and reported? No, it no that's what I'm saying. I think I, I think the forger spilled it to to a buddy of his or some. Maybe he was bragging, or you know, maybe he was trying to get uh, another forgery job and said, "Hey, look at my track record. I'm the guy that got." <laughs> that, that would you be, that would be funny if he's he's bragging to he say, "Hey, c- can you hire me?" No, I don't know. I don't know if, if if you're really the right guy for the job. Not the right guy for the job. Look, I just did this for Gordon Vale in a seven hundred thousand dollar lawsuit. Oh, really? Well, okay. Hmm. You know what? Screw Gordon Vale. I, I don't like that guy. He always irritated me. Okay, I'm I'm I'm, I'm emailing Poker Stars. Like, I, <laughs> maybe it is like that. Uh, I, I just think it's crazy that you can't. Uh, either you do it yourself, or you get someone to do this who you know you can trust. That isn't going to uh, shoot their mouth off about this. Uh, the fact that this got back to them is amazing. As is the very poor quality work. Because the funny thing is. Even if it got back to them, and even if the forger admitted it, Veo may have still, if, if the forgery was of quality, he could just say the forger's lying. Now, of course, he'd still be up the creek at that point because then they could demand certified copies of these from the banks and then the phone company and all that, and he couldn't provide that because it was forged. But, but here, it was the one-two punch of these being poor quality and you know, riddled with mistakes and the person who forged it uh, giving them everything. They had the original and the forgery. They had all the goods. Yeah, I, I mean, and I don't know the, you know, a lot of the details of the case as far as what went on behind closed doors. I can tell you if, if I were representing Gordon Veo and, and this came up during the course of representation, the first thing I would do is go to PokerStars and I would say something like, listen, nobody's going to admit any liability here, but why don't we settle? You know, he doesn't want to keep having to pay for this costly litigation and you know, at the end of the day, this is how he makes his living, and 
long we try to work something out, we'll, you know, everybody get off the hook and I'll go my way, you go your way and try to do something like that. But, you know, once his original attorneys substituted out of the case and basically left, and I understand why, um, the new counsel probably should have reached out to PokerStars attorneys right away and said, look, let's just try to figure this out and everybody can save face. Um, but, you know, instead he just dismissed with, either with or without prejudice. I think it was with, with prejudice. Do, um, do you think it's possible he to just do it? dismissed the case. Yeah. Do you think that it's possible the new attorneys um, or, or the fail? I know the attorneys are basically acting on his orders, but do you think it's possible that even after this was caught and then the other attorneys bailed and then the new ones came in, you think he still had hope that maybe even if he has to admit that he forged these documents, that that he only forged them because he had no other proof he was in Canada, but he really still was? Do you think that was going to be his uh, what, what he thought he might want to proceed with and didn't want to give up? I mean, I, well, that would be the only way he could, try, you know, he could go if, if he kept the lawsuit alive. But there was, I really believe, honestly, that this lawsuit would have been dismissed anyway, just on the jurisdictional grounds that was the, you know, which was one of the original issues. And it also, it's like it's a red flag right at the beginning when a guy who is a pro and supposedly was playing out of Canada files the lawsuit here in Los Angeles. It really didn't make any sense to begin with. You know, why wouldn't you just file it in Canada? That's where the alleged, you know, grievance occurred, so to speak. And, and Canadian courts may have had a better jurisdictional argument, you know, than Los Angeles, as far as the Isle of Man is concerned. So, you know, they, it had already started at some red flags. Um, and, you know, as, as an attorney, I can tell you that if, if, you know, we cannot, under any circumstances, present evidence or uh, that we know to be falsified or put somebody on the stand to testify that we know is going to lie. And that might be the other problem, too, is even if a new attorney came in, because the damage is already kind of done, you know, Gordon Vale would essentially have to, under oath, admit that he forged documents to attempt to defraud PokerStars. And, you know, at that point, there'd probably be some federal indictments coming down um, over that. So there's a, there's a, you know, there's a, a Fifth Amendment sort of issue there, too, as to why he probably couldn't say that. Yeah. And uh, so, so what they're going after here is, is they're going after their attorney's fees and costs. Uh, they're claiming that... Uh, it's like two hundred eighty thousand dollars, and I think it could even end up. They, they haven't actually done it yet, but they're saying they're going to. And uh, now, here, here's a question for you: because I, I don't know the answer to this one. Uh, if they may have jurisdictional issues, right? Like, wouldn't they have to go after him in an Isle of Man court, and then somehow find a way to c- collect from him based upon a judgment from that court? It's a good question. I'm not sure because. The fact that it was dismissed out of Los Angeles and this is where the attorney's fees were incurred, it's possible that the federal court in the central district could retain what's called ancillary jurisdiction over these types of matters. So they wouldn't be deciding any of the core issues involved in the lawsuit, but as an ancillary matter for a sanction or a motion for fees and costs, they might be able to, uh, it could be that they're retaining jurisdiction for that. Yeah, well, that's that, that's really PokerStars' only hope, I would think, to collect the money. Otherwise, if they get an Isle of Man judgment, then I think Veo could wipe his ass with it. But uh, but something in California might might be uh, tougher for him to avoid. Um, I don't I, I don't think PokerStars is going to actively try to collect it anyway. To be honest, I think they're going to get it, and I think they're going to use it to sort of you know keep as a uh, as a deterrent for other people, or let people know that they're really serious about it. That they didn't just you know, bring out the forged documents and make Gordon Veo tuck tail and run away. 
you know, that they really went after him now. And so anybody else that thinks that they're going to, you know, VPN in from uh, Miami Beach or L.A. And, and take a big score, you better think twice. And not only are you now going to be banned for life and you're not going to be able to play on one of the only sites that pros can still play on and, and you know, really grind it out, uh, but we're going to come after you for the amounts that we're going to spend. And their law firm, the law firms that, uh, you know, that PokerStars hires, they're not like your friendly neighborhood Eric law firm. I mean, these are really expensive uh, firms. They charge a lot of money. So uh, that's what I think is really likely to happen. I think that they're going to get a judgment of some kind for costs and fees. They're going to wave it around. Uh, I don't think they're going to actively collect. Now, so do you think they they actually hired California-based attorneys for this because it was filed in or U.S.-based attorney? Do you think it was which attorneys do you think were they using? In-house attorneys or uh, was it? Uh... No, they had no. They had to hire uh, attorneys that are licensed in California, even though it's in federal court. So an attorney licensed from another state. So if I'm licensed in California and I want to do a federal case in New York. I can do that in federal court, but I have to get a local attorney to sort of sponsor me, and then I have to get admitted what's called pro hoc vice by that particular jurisdiction. I have to see that I don't have a record of discipline and my license is still in good standing and that I've got a local guy to kind of guide me through it. So they have to have local firms hired. So Gordon Vale hired a firm named Quinn Emanuel, which is a very large firm also, um, and they're an expensive uh, firm, but... Um, and I, I don't remember off the hand, offhand uh, the firm PokerStars hired, but both both sides were, were okay. So, so PokerStars, okay, so they incurred some real costs here. They they had to pay a lot of money out of pocket to defend this for a while, and uh, yes, okay. Well, I mean, there wasn't that much on it, but there was probably a lot of work prior to the litigation. Uh, I mean, once the litigation first started, I think there was a lot of research time spent and and, and investing uh, investigating. You know, the actual documents that were filed uh, wasn't wasn't quite at the point where there was a flurry of litigation yet, uh, but there was definitely a lot of back and forth going on. Um, and the, you know, the the you know your typical federal court motion could be five or ten pages, and these guys are filing thirteen, fourteen, eighteen, twenty-five page motions, even for basic you know simple things. So there, there was definitely a lot of money spent uh, on both sides. Interesting. Now, you know what I the thing about the prejudice without prejudice thing. I remember reading it now. I, I, I just found it on the forum. This is written by Joe D on the Poker Stars, the Poker, Poker Fraud Alert forum, on the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum, on the thread about this. And he, he's an attorney, also Joe D. I don't know exactly who he is, but I, I believe he's an attorney. He, he says he is, and I believe him. Uh, but he wrote, "Poker Stars actually offered to drop out of to, to drop the whole mess and not make public the forgery claims if Veo dismissed his lawsuit with prejudice. Instead." Veo's original lawyers opted to voluntarily dismiss the lawsuit without prejudice and ran away as fast as they could. <laughs> so, if that's true, that's especially bad. If Poker Stars said, "Hey, we caught it, but let's just let's just drop the whole thing. You know, we won't talk crap about you. You don't talk crap about us. No one will know you're a forger, and uh, and 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 it'll just be seen the the matter's dropped. Uh, but you've got to dismiss it with prejudice." <laughs> and then Veo, uh, the, the original lawyers, for whatever reason, dismissed it without prejudice and dropped dropped the case, dropped him as a as a client. So, yeah. So there's probably some truth to that, the way that kind of happened. But what's most what's more likely is that the original firm that represented Veo said, "Hey, look, this has just come to light, and we're not going to represent you anymore." You know, attorneys can withdraw from representation when something like this comes up, or a client lied, or forged document, or, or what have you. 
And so the original firm uh, for Gordon Vail said, look, we're not going to proceed with this. We're not going to put you on the stand. We're not going to use this bullshit evidence. So we're out. So we can do one of two things. We can, you can either fire us and bring somebody else in. We can file a motion to withdraw and be relieved as counsel, but that's going to be part of the public record. Or we can just dismiss this case for you uh, and we'll just walk away. Now, the easy thing to do is a voluntary dismissal without prejudice so that he doesn't, he doesn't lose any of his rights. So that's why in a case like that, this or in this particular circumstance, an attorney would dismiss without prejudice so that he doesn't, in, in a sense, kind of screw his client over or commit malpractice by taking away a client's right to pursue this litigation somewhere else or with someone else. But, but that makes sense. But the, here's the question, though. Since if, if Poker Stars really did offer to drop this but said we're under the condition you drop it, you, you dismiss it with, with prejudice – why would they at that point say, oh, you know, because of all this BS evidence we're leaving and, and we're dismissing you without prejudice to preserve your rights? And, oh, uh, yeah, that will ruin your possible possibility to make a deal with them. But if you like, w- were they just confused or uh, did uh, that's what's so weird to no, me that I, he didn't have a way out of it? No, he didn't take the way out. No, they weren't confused. Either the client, Gordon Veo, didn't authorize them to do that, to make any kind of deal. And at the end of the day, an attorney kind of has to do what his client wants, even if it's against the attorney's best advice. Or part of this settlement was also like the lifetime ban and all these other things, and they just didn't want to do it. No, I'll get I'll get another attorney to you know, and I'll you know, we'll try to keep fighting or something like that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's maybe something like that. Yeah, so it's it's that's pretty crazy that he even had a way out of this. And. Uh, he didn't take it. Apparently, that's what's being claimed. So uh, now, now he. I mean, at the, end, at the end of the day, if he would have taken that deal, most likely he would have saved himself this, you know, two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand uh, dollar attorney's fees judgment that's on its way. Uh, you know, he still wouldn't get any of the money, and he'd still probably get banned for life from Poker Stars for doing this, for violating the terms of service. But he, he would have, you know, wouldn't have to deal with, you know, ultimately was going to be a pretty heavy motion for attorney's fees and costs. And by the way. The court has to actually review that request and award those attorney's fees. It's not an automatic. It's oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I knew that, yeah. But they have to go through the, yeah, I've been on the other side of that where I've sought fees and costs after being a prevailing party on a motion. And judge has to look at it and look at your billing, you know, the hourlies and what you're doing and the description of the work and decide if that's reasonable or not. And then they'll decide if you get the whole amount or they'll reduce it. So, yeah. but most likely. You know the firm bills a high hourly. You know, so I, I actually—it's funny you, you mentioned attorneys' fees and how they're not always awarded. I actually—I know somebody. This was about two years ago. Uh, I know somebody who had a restraining order fi- filed against him, actually by another guy. It, it wasn't like a guy stalking his girlfriend. It, it was—it was two guys involved, and it was a frivolous restraining order that was filed against against my friend. And it, it really was. I knew the story very well, and it was a frivolous uh, restraining order. I won't go into the story, and it's nobody anyone out here knows. It's not a poker player. But um, the restraining order uh, was granted. Even though it was frivolous, this guy's my, my friend's attorney did a very poor job in court. I think he was even drunk. He showed up to the court drunk. Whatever it was, the, his attorney did a terrible job. And even though he should have been able to get this dismissed because of a super frivolous uh, restraining order that was, was being done, uh, the restraining order was granted. So then the attorney uh, made the motion for attorney's fees for the restraining order case and asked for $6,800. And from what I've heard, 
the customary attorney's fee award for this type of thing is about $2,000. But he went for 6800 because he was greedy. And, and basically this attorney was doing this on, on a contingency, basically, that he uh, – I think he was basically doing the work for free uh, and then expecting to collect the attorney's fees if he gets them. I think that was the deal that he had with the plaintiff. So, so the attorney went to court you know, to, to – there was a court hearing to get the fees, a separate hearing. And the attorney, right. the attorney stated in court something that I think was pretty stupid. Uh, he, he cited that the reason that he thinks he's entitled to the fees was because they gave my friend an option to avoid the whole court thing and just accept the restraining order, just to accept that it's going to be permanent and not actually – and just uh, concede it and not, not continue in court. But because, because my friend refused that and, and then went to court, that therefore he should owe attorney's fees. So what the judge said right back to him was, wait, you're saying that people don't – they don't deserve their day in court? Are you, are you saying that that's, that's the reason he should be awarded fees is because uh, he shouldn't be allowed to have his day in court? Look, a restraining order that affects people. It can affect their employment. It can affect their right to own a gun. It, it's, uh, you, know, you can't just uh, say someone can't have their day in court for this. So he says, oh, but Your Honor, I did all this work, blah, blah, blah. And, the, and then so anyway, the, uh, the, it was denied completely. He got zero. He got absolutely zero. And uh the attorney for my friend was also there for that hearing and for whatever reason he did a much better job on the day defending the fee thing maybe because he felt bad that he screwed up the first time but uh he, he said to my friend that part of the reason the judge took an instant dislike to this defend to this plaintiff's attorney was because he was asking for so, so many fees he was asking for fees that were like three more than three times what was customary there and, and he was, and he came off as greedy right, right off the bat. And then that statement he made about, uh, oh well, he just didn't have to go to court, then this wouldn't have happened. We we offered to just have him accept it, uh, and therefore he owes fees. That that didn't go over well either. So 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 the guy got the, the guy tried for too much and got nothing. Where where the, the I think if if he tried for something reasonable and just came in with a very simple answer of look, you know, uh, we won the case, so there there therefore it was it was a valid it was. The valid case we filed for this restraining order, we won it, and I had to do work. I had to do legal work for uh, for the plaintiff here, and that costs money. And uh, you know, please grant these uh, usual and customary fees. But because he came in with that stupid story and and wanted three and a half times what he should normally get, he got nothing. So I thought I thought that was interesting. No, it, it, I've seen that. Not I mean, restraining order cases are also very interesting because you're right to the extent that it really deals with somebody's liberty. You know, they're they're you know you're sort of restricting certain degrees of freedom that somebody has and so courts take that very seriously to begin with um but but anything that has sort of a you know when you've got 25 attorneys request fees over very over a period of time for restraining orders and they're all between two thousand and twenty five hundred dollars and then somebody comes out and it's seven thousand dollars uh you know the judge of course is going to be very suspect of that i've actually had it where i had to file what's called a motion to compel uh, the other party to respond to discovery. And when you do that, you're automatically granted your fees because you had to basically take the time to bring this motion and force them to respond to something they already should have. And I had asked the judge for two hours of fees, two hours, that's it. But apparently this judge had known this other attorney so often, this guy does it all the time and then responds very late. He gave me one hour. And I had a choice at that point. I could go to the hearing and argue for the one hour, which would cost my client probably more because it, would, it wouldn't take me just one hour between travel time back and forth to court. 
to do that or just accept what the judge says. And so you have judges that do that all the time, but they'll reduce it down. They don't like it. And by, that's just as a rule, by the way, anybody listening that decides to go to court and try to get their attorney's fees, judges in general don't like awarding that. The American system has always been each side pays for their own. And only when you have a contractual uh, obligation to pay attorney's fees does it really you know, get, come into play. Um, but when people just ask for you know, these sort of arbitrary amounts, especially for fairly simple work, judges typically frown on that. You know, that's, that's not usually granted. So it doesn't surprise me that the judge gave him nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was, I actually thought going into it, I thought he was going to lose that because he had lost the the restraining order. And, be, and I, I thought the, it just seemed like it was going to go that way too. But you know, when that, when that amount of money was asked for and when that stupid justification was used I, on a separate note, I, I learned from my friend about restraining orders about this. And I was actually very disappointed in, in the, legal system with the way those work because they can really screw people i had always thought prior to that that if a restraining order is filed against you that the worst that's going to happen to you is just that uh even if it's frivolous uh you just can't contact that person again if it's filed against you and you lose then you just can't contact that person again without uh, some kind of penalty against you so so if you're not going to ever uh, be around them or want to contact them again then it's it's really pretty meaningless. That's what I thought, but that I was incorrect. It turns out that you know, there are there are, there's other consequences, such as you can't own a gun, which I think is really bad. It's, uh, if, if, especially if it doesn't have to do with violence. I could see if you're if you're threatening someone with a gun and they get a restraining order against you, I could see uh, firearm uh, restrictions being pl- put in place. But where it has nothing to do with a gun or nothing to do with violence, uh, and, and then now your ability to have a gun has been taken away from you. Which I, I thought that that's insane that that can be done, and and second, yeah, that, that not only can you not get one, but if you already own one, you have to turn it in. Right, right. I thought that's crazy. And then the second thing I thought was 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 uh, insane is that uh, that this can be looked up and it, it it can affect your employment. A lot of times, people will apply for jobs and do the restraining order against them, they don't get the job. So there's there's a lot of uh, consequences to this, and I, I think there it's unfair because a lot of these are not uh, so, some of these are frivolous. Where like you know, someone will. Uh, you know, they'll, 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 restraining orders are typically yeah they're typically driven by emotional issues. You right. Know, they're they're usually some kind of domestic dispute or or family law based you know disagreement or problem. People use terms like stalking and things like that. I think that you know I don't want to paint it with a broad brush because you know there are very important reasons why we have restraining orders and there are legitimately people that are stalked or threatened or, or feel threatened by, by, by others. But it's also, unfortunately, one of those things that can be easily used. And because it's, 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 because it's so important and because the safety of the filing, the, the person seeking the restraining order is always first and foremost in the court's eyes, what they typically do is they'll grant these temporary restraining orders for a period of time and then they'll set a hearing date. And then you have to go and sort of prove up the hearing. And at that point, things might be able to finish off or come to an end or, or what have you. But uh, but it could also become permanent uh, if it's really bad enough, or if you have bad representation, or you don't make a good argument, or or the judge just believes the other party. You know, the judge says, "Look, you just yeah. you know you strike me as the kind of person that uh, will show up in the middle of the night and break in." So yeah, I, I think I know, think they're I think that they're fine in concept. I just think the way they're being executed with with like the I think the firearm thing should absolutely not be the case unless there is a danger of violence. If this is not there's many restraining orders that are filed where it's not a fear of violence, it's just a, it's just the person's annoying them. Or you know, let's say let, let's say for example, Eric, I, I decide I'm just gonna start harassing and I just start making you know prank calls to you all day and all night. 
And I, de- I never threaten anything. I just, I just say, you know what? I, I just enjoy prank calling you. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Well, you, you, know, you could get a restraining order against me to prevent me from doing this. But I, the, the, and, and while you'd be right to do so, this should have nothing to do with whether I, I can own a firearm. This, because this, this has nothing to do with violence. So I think... Well, let, me, let me give you a better example. Imagine that Starbucks seeks a restraining order against Ken Scaler because he goes to the same stall every day in the <laughs> afternoon. Okay. But that but that could get looked up. I mean they would have a valid they would have valid ground. And down the road, Ken wants to get a straight job somewhere or wants to buy a firearm or what have you and he'll be denied. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe he wasn't threatening anybody, you know, there there was no risk of harm other than maybe to himself. So there you go. But but and it could be for things like that. It could be for, you know, people just uh, Doing, you know, doing things that other people don't particularly yeah, I, appreciate I was, or don't want to see or whatever. I was very surprised. Uh, so I, I've, I had always thought that this, these restraining orders were much less consequential to, to the defendant if he loses than they actually were. So uh, and something else I found out was that uh, people can do them cross-state and actually uh, – uh, you can't. You, you'd have to go all the way across the country to defend them. They can. They can do them on the East Coast or serve someone in California, and then if the person in California doesn't want that standing restraining order against them in New York, they actually have to go to New York to defend it. Which is yeah. It, it, that, that you know, there there are ways to kind of deal with that. You can you can send what's called appearance counsel. You know, they'll, they'll make a special appearance for you because you can't you can't travel. Um, but that's never really quite as effective as being there in person. So the judge can see that you're not, you know, some kind of crazy maniac. Um, yeah, but yeah, it, it can have very far reaching effect. I think these, these can be abused very badly. I, I, I was very, uh, when I learned about them because of this, uh, experience that, that my friend had two years ago, I was, I was uh, wow, I, I never knew this stuff, but, uh, I, I was surprised. Like when, when my friend called me and says, you know, they're saying I've got to, uh, got to give up my, my guns here. I don't understand it. Like, I was like, I was like, no, you could. This has nothing to do with guns. No, yeah, he had to give up his guns. So that 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 was that was pretty amazing. So okay, let's let's move on here. Um, this this is this is really who who has the dog by the way? Who's got the barking dog in the bed? Is that your dog? No. So what happened is uh, I I warrant an explanation. So my my wife God bless her plays in this like mom's volleyball league, and so. She decided to have her whole team come over after their practice for coffee and tea or what have you. And so in order to not have all of that background noise, I went and sat outside. So now it's this neighbor's dog that keeps barking and he doesn't <laughs> shut up. So that's actually what you're hearing. So I can't, I can't go inside and talk, and i got to sit out here and listen to the dog. So I apologize. Okay. Now, now I, 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 visit, I actually visited Eric's house one time. Uh, I, we were over there uh, for for many hours but but at the end that your dog disappeared was that dog ever found yeah yeah he came, he came back oh, okay i was actually worried i was when i was driving away i was looking so carefully one is i wanted to, i was hoping i'd see your dog somewhere out there and second i i really didn't want to run over your dog that would that would have been awful if you invited me over there and then i had to call you and say uh by the way i found your dog but your dog is, is under my tire now so i, okay, I didn't part, want to make, part of your muffler i yeah I, I didn't want to make that phone call so i was like driving 10 miles per hour and Looking every direction as I was leaving that neighborhood, and uh, and was was your I assume your house was okay? I know you were in the, the fire danger zone as I was. 
Yeah, um, but we, you know, we weren't really that close. I mean, we were okay. We were we were under voluntary evacuation. My office was more affected in, in that area in Agora. Um, that was harder hit, and I couldn't get back into the office for three or four extra days. Um, but I just, you know, we just packed the kids up and drove to Vegas. Just, you know, I, I wish I had done that. I, what what happened with me is, uh, I was actually at a psychiatrist's appointment at. Uh, uh, just as the fire was breaking out, like just like minutes into the appointment, it broke out, and the the appointment I was actually at was, was in Agura. So, uh, I get out of the appointment, and I actually had my girlfriend's car because uh, I, I needed to add oil to it. And just as I was adding oil to it at like you know around three ten or something, she calls me and says that uh, she just passed a fire. On the freeway, like it's like on the on the hill of the side of the freeway with big flames, and she thinks this is going to be a bad one. And I thought she was probably right, so I actually said, "Well, I'm not going to take the freeway back. I'm going to, I'm going to take the back street." So I took the back streets, which was smart because they closed the freeway; it would have been a disaster. So I took the back streets. Immediately went to go pick up Benjamin. Uh, I see a fire on the hill right behind his school, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and and there's smoke everywhere. And so I grabbed him. It was a good thing I grabbed him because they, the parents who hadn't gotten their kids yet, uh, they actually took the kids on a bus uh, out of town. <laughs> so you had to go get them in some community center or something. So I, I avoided that. So I, then I had to quickly grab everything that I wanted to not get destroyed in a fire. And uh, so I'm going through the house trying to frantically grab things. And uh, Ben was getting kind of nervous. He was a little nervous. He he said at one point, "I'm eight. I'm eight years old. I don't want to die." And I said, <laughs> "I said no. I said, well, I'm 46 years old. I don't want to die either." I said, "Don't worry. I'm not going to." I said, "That's not how fires work. It's not going to just appear here. We can see that it's not that close yet. So even the fast moving ones, you can see they're starting to get fairly close. This one isn't that close to the house yet. So." We still have time. I'm going to keep looking out the window and see where it is. And if it's still not that close, then you know we we have time to be grabbing stuff. So I grabbed as much as I could and stuffed the car. And I, I drove to my parents' house, which was well out of the fire zone, but still you know, not that close uh, in Southern California, but still pretty pretty far away and a lot of traffic because it was in the evening time when rush hour was. But uh, funny thing was, I actually went through Malibu. And Ben says, like, why are we going through Malibu? I don't want to go through Malibu. And then for some reason, he didn't want to go through Malibu. And I said, well, don't worry about this. It's totally safe here. Malibu's not going to have a fire. <laughs> nope, Malibu, Malibu the next day had a fire, too. Not when we, were, when we drove through it, it was very safe. But uh, the next day, then had a, had a bad fire. And, and we were shut out for a few days and came back, and nothing burned, thankfully. So, and, and fortunately, the... The hills by our house also did not burn, so I don't have to worry about mudslides that may occur this week. There's actually going to be some rain on Wednesday in Southern California, uh, so I don't have to worry about that either because the hills right by, you know, the, the hills that would affect me if there were mudslides did not have the fire. Because that's what, in Santa Barbara, or near Santa Barbara, in uh, uh, in Montecito, they had some terrible mudslides that uh, they killed a lot of people after after the fire last year. Yeah, I remember. And and that's and there were people who just uh, in the middle of the night just boom mud mud just crashed through their house and and and, and carried them away and then suffocated them. 
or, or smashed them into something hard and it killed them. And, uh, um, there, there's some very sad stories, including ones where, you know, families would, you know, people would try to grab onto things and hold it in the house as the mud's rushing through there. And, uh, some were able to hold on and some weren't. And then the ones who weren't were sometimes found, uh, you know, two miles away, carried by the mud and dead. And uh, amazing. Here's one amazing story that came from that. A little baby was carried by the mud like a mile and a half and was found alive. Wow. So somehow the baby just kind of like like floated on top of the mud or something and just uh, was actually found alive and, and not even that uh, that badly injured. I think there was a baby's a few months old. But, oh, that's amazing. But, the, yeah, there was, there was a, but there was a lot of people died from that who had, uh, you know, so first there was a fire in that area. And but the much more damaging thing that occurred, and much higher death tolls from the mudslides. And these were people who had lived there for many decades, and it was it was a sad story reading about. And some you know, a lot of people that died were, were kids and teenagers, and it was kind of people from all walks of life that that died from these mudslides. Uh, though some of them made a mistake, some of them were in areas that were told to evacuate because of the mudslide danger and chose not to, and then uh, they died for that. So. Whenever, whenever you, you know, whenever you get a mandatory evacuation told to you, the way those work is that they can't force you to leave, but uh, they can prevent you from coming back if you do leave. Like if you leave to go to the store and then try to come back, they can prevent you from coming back, but they can't actually take you out of the house and make you leave. But but it's always smarter to do it because they they know, and yes, sometimes they're overly cautious, but. It, you know, it's better safe than sorry in these situations. Like the people, the, think of the people with the mudslides there. It's like, oh, you know, mudslides, whatever, and then, yeah, it kills them. So, you know, it's, it, these aren't going to last forever. You, you leave for whatever time you need to leave, you know, a few days, a week, what, whatever it's, it's necessary, and then you, you come back. And, uh, and, and these people who, who in Montecito, who, this is a very, very wealthy area where people died from those mudslides. All of these people could have easily afforded to go somewhere else. These weren't people who were, who were poor and couldn't afford to leave or had no way to leave. They, these were people who, who had a lot of money who could have easily done it. They just chose not to. And uh, it was sad that, uh, that that was a result. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's so weird. Like, one of the nights after we, could, we returned is actually when the fire got the closest, but the, the danger wasn't that high because the wind was blowing the other way. But I actually sat on top of a hill near my house with Benjamin, and we watched the the, the flames. We watched we watched the flames uh, about two miles away that we could see very clearly because we were on top of a hill. And it was strange to you know go up there and watch that to just go up and sit and watch a fire in progress. So it's very weird when fire happens. It's kind of like a surreal experience. And uh, there was one we had uh, five and a half years ago that actually helped us somewhat because this fire actually ran into the other fire, the remains of the other fire from five and a half years ago, and a lot hadn't gr- grown back yet. So it, uh, it, it it pretty much stopped the fire. That, that helped a lot. But there were actually two fires in Southern California. And the um, there's the Hill Fire and the Woolsey Fire, and the Woolsey Fire became the bigger one. So, okay, let's... let's yeah, and I think something else, one broke out by LAX too for a little while, but I think they got that one pretty quick. Yeah, there were some little ones, yeah, but they, they stopped them. And uh, at first I thought that the, this was arson because the two fires in Southern California broke out within 21 minutes of each other, and they were about exactly 20 minutes away by car. 
So I said, okay, well, it was too close in time for embers of one to have blown to the other. Like, it couldn't, it couldn't have blown that far in 20 minutes. And this is exactly the amount of time someone who set one fire and jumped in his car and drove away would take to get to the other location to set the second fire. But apparently that's probably not what happened, because they actually showed there were some electrical disturbances like right before uh, one of these fires occurred. So it looks like it's yeah, I thought it, it was a perfect storm. You know, the winds and the heat and the, the dry brush, and you know, with, with so long without rain, and yeah, I mean, it just created the worst possible conditions. Yeah, California always has this problem because California is one of the few places in the country, not even Las Vegas is like this, where there will be six months or more with little to no rain, starting from mid-April through mid-October. Often, not one drop of rain will fall. Or if rain does fall, it's like a few drops. It's barely anything where it's, where it's inconsequential. So you have six months of no rain, and everything is so dry, and all it takes is one of these warm, windy uh, uh, weather conditions to take a small fire and make it terrible. And with everything being so dry, everything just you know, lights up. And with a lot of brush in the area and a lot of hills in the area that... Uh, uh, these fires can spread very fast. So that's that's why you see these fires in Southern California for those of you that are not from the area. Okay, so this is this is a weird story here. I I, I don't... I, I, on our last broadcast, we talked about it. And at the very end, we were starting to get some more detail that added an element of mystery. I'm talking about Five Dimes owner Tony, whose real name is William Sean Creighton, who disappeared on September 24th. Supposedly his car was run off the road. He was taking a gunpoint in a taxi somewhere. It's kind of weird to take a taxi. Like, uh, taxi! Uh, yes, um, I'd like you to take me and the guy I'm holding a gunpoint here to this spot in the city. Okay, sir, right away. Like, like how, do you, how do you take someone in a taxi? When, when you're holding a gunpoint, but that's that's what supposedly happened. The guys in like motorcycles and a car forced Tony's car off the road in a remote area at night. Uh, they they took Tony and then held him for ransom. Anywhere between seven hundred fifty thousand and a million dollars in Bitcoin was paid in ransom, but then they didn't return Tony. And then a few weeks later is is when the story hit the media. And then, like, a day or two after the story hit the media, uh, Tony was found dead. Well, there were some strange things about this. We talked about the story last time. There were some strange elements to this. So, yes, it's believable that someone like Tony, who made a lot of money on this five-dime sports book that's a, a large online sports book that's been around for a long time, it's believable that living in a place like Costa Rica, which is where this occurred, which where five times five times located, that you would be a target for ransom. A, a rich guy in Costa Rica, especially someone who's not from there. So that part's believable. But the, the parts that were weird were number one, the ransom. It was never clarified exactly what ransom was paid. Some stories said seven hundred fifty thousand. Some said a million. Uh, the, the payment involved Cuba in some way that didn't make sense because the payment was supposedly in bitcoins. They were saying, well, they transferred money to a bank in Cuba to pay the bitcoins. Like, what? 
That's not how Bitcoin works. Bitcoin can be paid anywhere in the world. That's the whole point of Bitcoin. There's, there's no, uh, it's not associated with any particular country. So why would they need Cuba to be involved? And you may say, well, maybe, maybe Cuba was needed because they needed to receive the money and then they would send the Bitcoin. Maybe, maybe they just couldn't buy that type of Bitcoin there in Costa Rica. But Five Dimes has a ton of Bitcoin because that's how, we're, that's how they mainly process deposits and cash outs these days. A lot of it's in Bitcoin. So they have tons of Bitcoin coming through there. And, and certainly they should have been able to find some way to convert cash to Bitcoin, if, even if they didn't have enough, without having to send it to Cuba. The, the Cuba thing made no sense. It was not explained. The fact that they, they didn't know how much ransom was paid was not explained. Uh, the fact that the body was found two days after the whole thing hit the media, after there was nothing said about this for three weeks, was strange. The fact that the OIJ, which is the equivalent of the FBI in Costa Rica, seemed to take very little interest in this case was very strange, because it was found, a similar case was found where an Asian businessman was, was kidnapped and held for ransom. Very similar. And the OIJ jumped on that one and rescued him. Here, it seemed like the OIJ didn't care. And, and so that was another weird element of why, why did the OIJ care so much about the Asian businessman, but not Tony. Uh, then the whole matter of the body being found. So there's a report that the body was found, but the OIJ would not confirm this. Uh, this was just reported in the media. The OIJ didn't put out any statements about it. Five Dimes did not put out any statements about it. They didn't say you know, some kind of memorial for Tony. They did put out a statement that they're operating business as usual and they hope for Tony's safe return, but that's all they would say. After the body was found, they didn't say it was him or wasn't him. They just said nothing, which is really strange. Like, well, If it was him, wouldn't they say, uh, you know, we have tragic news, you know, Tony has been uh, has, has has been found dead. Uh, you know, condolences to his family. We're going to still operate uh, normally. Blah, blah blah. You know, what's the point of not saying that? It's not like he can come back to life. If he's dead, he's dead. And if it wasn't him, why not just say that? Why not just say, uh, you know, he was found dead? Uh, you've, you've heard reports he was found dead. He really wasn't. He's actually still alive. They, they didn't put out either of these things. That was also strange. So at the end of the last show, which was on, uh, I think October. 20th when I did the last show yeah it was October 20th people in the chat were saying that they were there were some rumors out there that Tony faked his own disappearance that the Bitcoin ransom was really just to give Tony money to survive on that he fled somewhere and that he was actually uh, under the witness protection program because he is going to testify against other business partners and he's working with the U.S. right now. So they, they basically faked his death in the meantime. Or faked his disappearance, not faked his death. They faked his disappearance and, um, and that's what all this is about. Or, alternately, al- alternately, that he got a tip that the U.S. government was about to bust him and, and he ran off and, and, and faked his disappearance. So these were the rumors that he basically kidnapped himself and that the ransom was actually just sending his own money to him that he could live on. So I thought that was an interesting angle. And this wasn't some weird conspiracy theory. I thought it was believable because this whole thing was strange from the start. This whole thing has not added up from the start. 
And when you have a story that's not adding up from the start, and when you have the police just not very interested in it, and there, there's so many factors to this where it just didn't really look like a kidnapping for ransom where, where the person was then killed. But I still wonder, what about this body that was found? What about that report? You know, what, what about that? Well, there might be an answer to that. Um, here's some information that came out that I can't say it's reliable, but this is uh, this is what I've read. That supposedly Five Dimes is now denying that the bo- that the body found was actually Tony, and that they are still hoping for his safe return. Amazing. So. Supposedly, Five Dimes is saying that that he's not dead, that that whatever body was found wasn't him, that they still don't know what's going on with him, but that he may very well still be alive because his body, that body was not him. Supposedly, uh, Five Dimes made that statement to someone, though I can't find it anywhere. this This is so strange. This is really, really, really strange. But I do think there's probably more to this than we originally thought. So I, I'm interested to see how this story ends. I wonder if we're going to see him pop up a few years later and that uh, he'll be testifying against his business partners. I wonder if he's just going to be found somewhere hiding using some of the proceeds that he's made over the years from Five Dimes. And he's been hiding from the law this time. I don't know. Something else that was a little weird about uh, the whole kidnapping was that it looked kind of staged. The car supposedly was forced off the road and crashed into a gate of of a private property kind of in the middle of nowhere. So let's look at this. First of all, the accident was very, very mild. You could hardly see any damage on the car. In this remote area, he just happens to hit a gate of a private property there. It's, you know, he's not just hitting a tree or something. He, he hits a gate of, of a property when there probably aren't many gates like that around. He just happens to hit the gate there. And very lightly to where the car is barely damaged. Uh, this, despite the fact that the car is barely damaged, uh, you know, he, he, he gets right out and stops the car uh, the people who take him away somehow information is known about them about what they were driving what they were wearing who who it, it's never been said who was a witness to this whole thing how do we know who took him that's that's never been specified to me it kind of looks like that Tony has seen too many bad movies of people being kidnapped and staged one kind of based upon that. Um, the way a kidnapping is, is more likely to happen is where uh, maybe he's walking to his car and especially at night and just guys jump out with guns and say, you know, you, you say anything, you move, you're dead, you know, come with us. And then they just drive him away somewhere. That, that's typically what will happen. 
uh, if they are going to force him off the road, um, it would be it would be kind of more like a blocking way, like cars just block his way from moving, not not that they physically force him off. And if he is physically forced off, it's going to be much worse of an accident than a you know a tiny bump into a gate. So it, it really looked like that. This was staged like, oh, here's his car. Look, his car is up against the gate. Well, okay, they must have made him crash into that. Okay, and they took him away. Well, that must be kidnappers. That's what it looks like to me. It, it does kind of look staged now that I think about it. So if I if I had to guess, I would say this is probably staged. I'd say Tony's probably alive. What a weird story. I said last time it was kind of like a movie. Now it's even more like a movie. Let me check the text messages I've received here. It's 775-372-8355 from the 402. Glad to hear your show again. Finally getting the chance to listen live. Keep grinding and hope you get to feel better soon. From, uh... These are older texts. I, I, I don't have an official statement, or even an unofficial statement... Someone has informed me that the Lottery Commission in Maryland uh, came in to a certain poker room and that there's a big issue going on there and that it might lead to a big lawsuit against a very big contractor in the poker in the poker room and it's going to be a, a story soon. But the person doesn't want themselves identified, and uh, they they actually asked me. They said, "Can can I call in and have my voice through a voice changer?" <laughs> and and they actually wanted me to do the voice changing. That uh, it's fine if they want to call with a voice changer. They actually wanted me to change their voice. I said, "No, I I don't have that type of technology here. This this is a low budget show." But I said, "What you can do is you can send me a statement of yours, and I will read the statement." But and the person never sent it, so maybe that'll be an upcoming story. But so far, I haven't heard from them. And this is someone who texted me from the five seven four. Hey, Jeff, I'm one of the guys who's been listening to you for years, and you have no idea who I am. I started listening to you about three or four years ago when I heard Adam is referring to Adam Schwartz of the Two Plus Two Pokercast, former Two Plus Two Pokercast, now now the uh, Dat Pokercast. Dat Poker Show. That's uh, uh, Daniel Negreanu. You know, Daniel's the D. Uh, Adam, the A, and then Terrence, Terrence Chan. Dat Poker Show is what they're doing these days. Uh, I heard Adam talking about you on Two Plus Two. Got hooked quick. I'm a police officer in Indiana. Just wanted to say, hopefully you get better. Miss your show. Take care. I always like hearing from these new listeners. If well, he's not a new listener. He's been around for four years. But if you have never contacted me before. And you listen to this show, send me a text, 775-372-8355. Even if you're not listening live, just let me know you're out there. Just so uh, I always like to hear from new people. We don't, we don't have to have like a long conversation. If you're worried that you're going to be roped into texting back and forth with me uh, 100 times a day, that's, that's not what's going to happen. Just, uh, you know, I'll send you a nice message back and that'll be that. And we can go on our own way and you can go back to listening quietly. I just, I just always think it's interesting to hear from these people that have been listening to me for so long, and I, I, as he said, I didn't know existed. 
I meet a few of them every year at the World Series, too. Every year, I have a few people come up to me at the World Series and identify who they are. But, uh, now, Eric, are you still here on the phone? No, we lost Eric. He hung up. I, I wouldn't say goodbye to him. I just thought he was kind of... Yeah, he dropped off after uh, okay. his segment was okay. over. <laughs> Hope he might be listening. So have a happy Thanksgiving, Eric. I, I was going to ask him to, to verify the fact that he found the show through Adam Schwartz mentioning it on the 2 Plus 2 PokerCast. So I give Adam credit. He's found us some listeners. And, uh, you know, they, they had a lot of listeners there at the 2 Plus 2 PokerCast, more than we had. And so he'd mentioned it, and people respected Adam. They thought, okay, well, if, if Adam listens to this, then it's got to be a good show. So they tried it. And then some people liked it and stayed. So I think I believe Eric was one of those people. That's how he found it. And uh, so yeah, I, I hear you're playing poker in the background, Trader Risky. What, what are you playing right now? Bovada again? Well, I was in an Omaha tournament, just busted out 20, 21st. That's so cool. made 60 bucks. No, better than nothing. All righty. So I'm going to move on to the next topic here. I'll let you guys know with Tony what ends up happening if we ever find out. Caesars and MGM are the two biggest casino companies in the U.S. and possibly in the world. I think probably in the world because really most of the casinos are in the U.S. So I'll I'll go with the world. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I believe it's the two biggest uh, casino corporations in the world. Obviously, they both have a very large presence in Las Vegas. Caesars owns a ton of properties in Vegas, and so does MGM. Some people don't realize that. Some people don't know that uh, so many different properties are under the umbrella of one of those two. You know Caesars Palace is Caesars. You know MGM Grand is MGM. But did you know that Bellagio is MGM, Aria is MGM, Luxor is MGM, uh, Circus Circus is MGM, uh, Mandalay Bay is MGM. Bally's in Paris are Caesars. Planet Hollywood is Caesars. The Rio, of course, is Caesars. Harris is Caesars. The Link is Caesars. Flamingo is Caesars. Mirage and Treasure Island, MGM. Right? Mirage, yes. Treasure Island was sold, so that's not. It was once MGM. It is no longer MGM. Uh, uh, the Monte Carlo, another one. So, uh, the MGM. So, the, the, really, if you get banned from MGM and Caesars. You're shut out of a lot of strip properties. You, most strip properties you can't go into anymore if you get shut out of both of them. So these are, and I, I believe me, I've kept that in mind. When I've been at Caesars properties, when I've been at MGM properties, I'm like, I'm not someone who misbehaves in casinos, but you know, there's certain things one can do in casinos that uh, can get yourself thrown out. There's, there's been times I've thought, you know, I better not do that in these places because. Uh, I don't want to lose them. And uh, Caesars, they they have the World Series. If I were to be thrown out of Caesars properties, I couldn't play the World Series anymore. If I were to be thrown out of uh, MGM properties, I could not uh, play poker at, at Bellagio anymore. And uh, and then I also just could, I couldn't go to a lot of properties. It would be really crappy. So what if they merged? Can you imagine? What if the two of them merged? Can you think of what a monolith they would be in Las Vegas. I mean, yes, there would be other properties on the Strip, and then, of course, there's ones downtown, too. But can you imagine how many properties in Vegas would then be under one umbrella, one company? 
And if you were to be banned from this one company, how many casinos you'd be shut out of at once in Vegas and many other places? Well, this is actually being discussed. This actually might occur. So there's speculation that this might happen. And this isn't speculation on one of these stupid websites that likes to publish Las Vegas rumors, but rather on uh, a television station, a local Las Vegas television station, Las Vegas 8, CBS 8. They put out this story that it, it, the story is called Experts Weigh In on Speculation that MGM and Caesars Entertainment will merge. And this story was dated November 5th, 2018. Pretty recent. And so the two biggest hotel casino giants... Caesars Entertainment could merge. Now, if that were to happen... I hate when videos autoplay. Be glad you couldn't hear that, Trader Ruski. The two biggest hotel casino giants in the Las Vegas Strip could soon become one. There is speculation that MGM Resorts International and Caesars Entertainment could merge. The New York Post was the first agency to report the speculation surrounding the properties. Sources close to the situation tell the New York Post that MGM has hired an investment bank and a law firm to start exploring the ideas of a merger. So they're, they're only in the exploration phase. They're not, you're not going to hear about this merger tomorrow. But apparently this is something that they are, are considering. And uh, a quote here, they're always looking at mergers and consolidation, so it's really not surprising that MGM would be considering this right now. The last big wave of mergers occurred involving these two companies. MGM Mirage merged with uh, the Mandalay Resort Group. The Mandalay Resort Group at the time was Mandalay Bay, Luxor, Circus Circus, and Excalibur. Those all became MGM properties and still are. Uh, Also, around then, Caesars and Harrah's merged and just became Caesars Entertainment. So now the two of them could actually merge. And then you might see further merging. Why? Because if this merger were to happen, then it's thought that some other smaller companies on the Strip would feel that they won't be able to compete. And that they would feel that in order to be able to compete properly with, these, with, with now this giant on the Strip, that they would have to merge. So the remaining independent properties might start merging as well. MGM Resorts and Caesars Entertainment were asked to comment. And they said that they declined to comment that they don't address rumors. Now that's interesting because they didn't deny it, but you could also say that they just don't ever comment because otherwise if they will deny something and then will not deny other things, then that pretty much means the things they don't deny are true. So they may just have a practice of denying all rumors or not answering about any rumors, whether they're true or false, so as to not give away any tells. Now, how would this affect you, the player? Would this be good? Would this be bad? I feel it would be mostly bad. 
for several reasons. There, there's, a, there's one good that will come of it. The one good is that you will have more properties around the country that are all under one player's club. So once you earn a status at one player's club, you will have far more properties to go to around the country that you'll enjoy that same status and same benefits and maybe even some same comps. So you won't you wouldn't have to have a good status at both Caesars and MGM to get a status at all those properties around the country. Now you just need it at one of them and it would uh, it would carry along to all other properties in the US that this new MGM Caesars company would own. That that would be the one benefit you would gain from it. But there are many negatives that would come from it. First of all, the aforementioned getting banned problem. Now you may say, getting banned? I don't get banned anywhere. You know, I, I don't ever misbehave. I'm, I'm always respectful when I go to these casinos. I never get too drunk to where I'm out of control. I'm not a cheater. So no one's going to ban me. I don't care. It's never going to happen to me. Uh, wrong. A casino can ban you for any reason at any time. The only reason they cannot ban you is something that's a, a federally protected from discrimination. They can't ban you for being gay, for being black, for for being Jewish, for being female, whatever. You know, they they can't uh, they can't ban you for those reasons. But they can actually ban you for those reasons. They just not say it's one of those reasons. You know, let, let's say uh, let's say some guy there takes a dislike to you because you're black. As long as he's not banning all black people, if he just happens to dislike you and especially dislike you more because you're black, uh, they can just ban you. As long as they don't have a chronic problem of banning mostly black people, then uh, then you're not going to be able to do anything about it. So it's very hard to prove this is the reason I was banned. So, so basically they can ban you for any reason. That, that's the bottom line. If the casino says you're banned, you're banned. And there's, there's very little you can do to fight it. And these happen for all kinds of reasons. If they feel that you're engaging in something called advantage play, which is where you are uh, playing in some way where the odds are in your favor. Not cheating, but you're playing within the rules of their own programs, but you just found a way to, to have the odds be favorable for you. If they feel you're engaging in that, they can ban you. If you happen to accidentally be engaging in that and don't even realize you are, but they think you know what you're doing, they can ban you. If they see you're associated with someone that is banned, they can ban you. That's happened to people before. I've known people who've been banned because someone else who's banned is friends with them and doesn't bother to mention, oh, I'm banned from this property. And then they all go hang out at that property then they catch the guy there when he shouldn't be, and not only do they reban him and maybe even arrest him, but they will ban everybody who was friends with him there. That can happen to you too, and you wouldn't even know it until it occurred. You just be there, you just be there with your buddy, and then you find yourself banned. Um, this could happen. Let's say you're at the blackjack table with a guy who's banned, and they mistake you for being a friend of his just because the two of you get along and, and you know, uh, just banter a lot back and forth and 
they realize he shouldn't be there and ban him. They, they mistake you as his friend, and they ban you. These things can all happen, and they're not easy to fight. In fact, they're very, very difficult to fight. So there's all kinds of ways you can get banned from a casino. Um, I may have a story coming up, by the way, about being banned from a casino totally unfairly over something I did not do. I'm still figuring it out. I'm still discussing it with a casino. And this is, when I say it's something I didn't do, I don't mean it's something that I think they can't prove I did. I mean it's something I absolutely positively did not do. And yet, I'm banned for it. And, and I, I, I'm, uh, I've been encouraging them to do more research because I'm telling them when they do their research, they will see that what they're accusing me of doing, I didn't do. It was 100% I didn't do it. Um, so, but, but, but I, I'm currently dealing with that situation. So, uh, and, and if eventually this, uh, this isn't resolved, then, uh, I, I will make it public and I will tell you guys the whole thing. But I'm, I'm hoping the casino does the right thing here. And, uh, it's a, it's a very weird story. I wish I could tell it to you guys right now. But... There's a lot of ways you can get banned. A lot of ways. And you don't want one casino being in charge of so many major properties on the Las Vegas Strip. You're going to be at their mercy. So that, that's, that's a big factor. Even if you're not an advantage player or someone who would think that they would get banned. I've known plenty of people who've gotten banned that would have never guessed in a million years that a casino would ever ban them. Another problem is lack of competition. Caesars and MGM are very much in competition in Las Vegas. A common thing that people will say when they're not happy with something at Caesars or at MGM is they'll threaten, hey, I'm gonna, if you don't fix such and such, I'm going to take all my action to the other place. That's what people who are frequent Caesars players will say if they're not getting treated the way they feel they should. They'll say it to Caesars, hey, if you, I, I, I could go bring all this action to MGM if, if you don't make this right. And then people at MGM who, who play a lot there who don't feel they're being treated right, they, they will say the same thing. Hey, you know, I can move all this action to Caesars if, if this doesn't get fixed. Now, you, you can't say things like that if you barely play, but I'm saying that... Uh, they're, they're competing with each other. They, they have to compete in a lot of different ways. Their reward clubs have to compete with each other. Their, their prices have to compete with each other. Their, the properties have to compete with each other. Their, the games they offer have to compete with each other. Because they both offer a lot of the same things. They both have a player's club that's good at many casinos around the country. They both own many major properties in Vegas where that player's club is... Uh, is the same for all their properties. They both own a mixture of high-end, middle-end, and lower-end properties in Vegas and elsewhere. They, they really have a lot of similarities in, in, in the markets they're trying to go after, and they're, they're actively competing. You take that away, and it'll be the one giant versus a bunch of small ones. So, so the competition will will be greatly reduced. That's that's a big problem. Another problem from this 
will be that uh, whenever new policies are invented that are not customer or player friendly, there will be much less resistance to those being rolled out. For example, the parking charge, the resort fees. Now, yes, they're here right now. We have them right now. But what delayed them somewhat was that one was afraid to do it when the other wasn't doing it. Caesars doesn't want to be the one charging for parking if MGM won't. MGM doesn't want to have resort fees if, if, if Caesars won't. That, that type of thing. In fact, for a, it was actually reversed. For a while, Caesars had no resort fees, and MGM did, and Caesars used to advertise that. Caesars eventually put the resort fees anyway because they realized that they were showing up with higher prices in search engines because they didn't have a resort fee, and MGM did, so MGM could have lower base prices and still collect the same amount for each room as Caesars was but appear to be lower on the Internet searches. That's why Caesars had to change it. But, uh, but anyway, the point is that when you do something that's not good for the customer and you just want the customer to tolerate it, it's easier to do that when you don't have to worry about the, the competition not doing it. So again, it's, it's a competition angle. So, and then also, for the players' clubs, it's not necessarily good that they're all combined. If you spread your play out in multiple properties with multiple owners, you can get a lot of different benefits. You get different offers. You get different base benefits. You get a lot of different things at the same time. Whereas if it's under one big umbrella, you're going to end up getting less. So as far as comps you'll be offered, especially as a new player, but even as an ongoing player, you don't want to limit your options to fewer properties, fewer owners, fewer groups. So you have to hope this doesn't happen. Now, if this happens, uh, what about the World Series of Poker? That shouldn't change very much because MGM doesn't have an equivalent to the World Series of Poker. So the World Series will just continue, and regardless of which company is the one that has its name on it, I I don't know if... if, uh, Caesars will be rolled into MGM or if MGM will be rolled into Caesars. It could be either one if this were to happen. But the World Series of Poker, it's already established. In fact, I would think that the current employees at the World Series, the major employees like uh, Jack Effel, Ty Stewart, Seth Polanski, I have to think these guys are all going to stay because they're, they're, they're the guys there now. They're the ones who are doing it. There would be a big learning curve to just bring in new people. So, now, if, if MGM had a competing product to the World Series, you could say, okay, they're going to drop the World Series and, and instead go with a competing product. But there is no competing product. So the World Series would just continue to be the World Series. It would just have a different owner. Different owner, but same employees operate the same way. The only thing that would change would be that uh, the thing is going to change anyway and that it'll probably be moving to center strip 
when that convention center that Caesars is building is done. But that's not even related to this merger. Is it possible this merger won't happen? Yes. In fact, it, it's more likely not to happen than to happen. So don't, don't panic yet. Don't say, oh my God, what about, uh, you know, it's going to merge, what am I going to do? No, it's, it's, it, there's plenty of time to, you're going to have to consider this all because it's, it's just in the exploration phase right now. What about your rewards credits or points that you have on your rewards card to the two properties? Will, will you just lose one of them? No, they'll find a way to convert them. It'll probably be a fair conversion, too. So I wouldn't worry about that. You're not going to just lose them. It's not going to disappear. So we'll see. I will let you know. Now, you probably heard on the previous show, I talked about this weird merger that was going to happen with Golden Nugget and Caesars, where the existing CEO of Golden Nugget would actually take over for Mark Versora, who has stepped down and is going to be leaving Caesars in February. That uh, the Golden Nugget CEO, uh, Tillman Fertitta, would take over in this merger with Golden Nugget. Now, that would not be as big of a deal because Golden Nugget is much smaller than MGM. I think they only have five properties and only one in Vegas. But that's dead in the water. That's not happening. That has fallen through. That was being discussed. Caesars has acknowledged it was being discussed, but Caesar said that they decided that it was not in their interest to do. It was Tillman Fertitta who tried to propose this. So Golden Nugget wanted this a lot more than Caesars did. It's kind of it's kind of like a Golden Nugget asked Caesars to marry it, and Caesars is like, "Let me think about this." Nah, I, I I don't think so. I have to turn down the engagement. Sorry, don't want to be married to you. On your way. On your bike, as Tony G would say. So no no Caesars Golden Nugget merger, which I'm happy about too. Trader Risky, you play at the Nugget a lot. Would you have wanted it to become a Caesars property or no? Probably not. Um, yeah, I talked to my friend that works there about it. I, you know, I think they could have gone either way, but knowing Caesars probably wouldn't have been positive. Yep. Okay. By the way, after after the show, I actually want to talk to you about something related to the Golden Nugget, but I, I don't want to say it on here. Anyway, uh, the merger is something I don't like hearing, but I'm not going to worry about it too much because it's far away if it's going to happen, and it may not happen at all. What do I mean by far away? I, I mean at, at least sometime in 2019, and I mean kind of probably mid to late 2019 if it happens, and more likely it's not going to happen at all. But it was worth mentioning because it is being covered by mainstream news media in the area. It's not just a stupid rumor. Here's something else that's not a stupid rumor. There are two new members in the Nevada Black Book. And it's not like a a black book that uh, a madame of a whorehouse would keep. I'm talking about a black book that the state of Nevada keeps that excludes all gamblers... Okay. It excludes, excludes a gambler from all casinos. 
once you're in that book, you cannot set foot in any casino, no matter what, even if the casino is okay with it. Even if the casino says, hey, we, we're cool with you. Nope, you can't. You're just simply not allowed to enter any casino if you're in the Nevada Black Book. So this is something that is reserved for ones that the state feel are very, very bad for the casino industry, mainly cheaters, that they just don't want entering any casino whether the casino is okay with it or not. It actually becomes illegal for this person to enter the casino. If they do, they're guilty of a gross misdemeanor. There are some exemptions. If the place has no gaming tables and 15 slot machines or fewer, then they can enter. And it also excludes airports, so you, you're not barred from the airport because McCarran happens to have some slot machines. You're, you're, you're allowed to go into the airport. You can't gamble there, but you're, you're allowed to go in, even if it has uh, slot machines. And you're allowed to go anywhere else that's not a casino. Airports, bars, and stores it would have to be. But there can't be more than 15 slot machines. And, no, and there cannot be any gaming tables there. Furthermore... If a casino allows a black book member to come into their establishment, they can face fines and licensing issues. There have been some challenges, some legal challenges to the black book in state court and in federal court. And every single time the black book held up, the state of Nevada, it was ruled, does have a right to just exclude people from entering casinos in the state. It only applies to the state of Nevada, by the way. If you want to enter casinos in other states, as long as the other state's okay with that, then you can. This is only on the state level. Now, I had said earlier that... You have to be alive to be in the Black Book, but that's not true. Apparently you don't. Uh, what I'm reading here is that uh, there's only been 35 in it ever, and some of these people are dead. So I'm going to read you the names of the first 33, and then I'm going to tell you about the last two who just got into the Black Book. The first one in the Black Book ever was a Chicago mob leader back in 1960. As you might imagine, he's not alive anymore, though he did live until 2003. Marshall Caifano. Number two, Louis Dragna. You might guess also a mobster. 1960. Fifteen years then passed. Nobody was in the Black Book until 1975. Two people ended up in there. Guys from uh, organized crime based out of Hawaii, of all things. Alvin Kauhu. And Wilford Pulawa, both in 1975. These were bosses of a, a, a Hawaiian organized crime syndicate. No more Black Book members for another nine years until the first cheater was put in there. John Vaccaro was put in there he, for cheating at slot machines in 1986. 
Sandra Vaccaro, I believe his wife, was put in there in 1987, also for cheating at slot machines. <laughs> so, uh, one year apart. I'm not sure if they were both banned at the same time from casinos or if he just sent his wife to start doing it after he stopped. But John Vaccaro and then Sandra Vaccaro a year later. Another uh, cheater and also a bookie and a mobster, Chris Petty in 1987. 1988, Michael Rizzatello. Another mobster, and apparently a convicted kidnapper. Sounds like a swell guy. William Land, a cheater, a card cheater, was put in there in 1988, the first card cheater ever put into the Black Book. James Tamer was a bank robber and mobster, 1988. Busy year, 88. Uh, Frank Masterana, a bookie, was put in in 1988. Frank Rosenthal, a Jew, put into the... Black Book in 1988 for being associated with the mob. Harold Lyons, a slot cheater in 1989, got in the back book, a Black Book. Another mobster, uh, Joseph Cusumano, 1990, being a mobster and convicted racketeer. Then we got uh, some slot cheaters, Douglas Barr in 1990, Timothy Child in 1991. Number 17, Francis Citro. A mobster and convicted racketeer in 1991. By the way, this this should show you how much mob influence was still in Vegas as recently as the early 90s. And I remember that. I remember it when I came to Vegas in the 80s as a teenager. And you could tell. You could tell that there was somewhat of a mob presence here. There's not any more. There hasn't been for a while. It changed when the corporations took over. Such a good segue to do this topic after the uh, Caesars-MGM merger. But the mob was still largely in control back then. It was it was starting from around 93 when the corporations started to take over Vegas. And the mobsters became much less important over here. Nineteen ninety two, Richard Perry, he was a sports fixer. He actually was someone who was bribing uh athletes to throw games. So he was banned in ninety two. Anthony Saint Laurent, a mobster and a bookie in nineteen ninety three Dominic Spinali, you would think he's a mobster. Wouldn't you think Dominic Spinali would totally be a mobster? He's not. He's, he's just, he may have been too, but it just says here he was a, book, a bookie. This one, for no reason that's stated, I don't know why, uh, Brent Eli Morris, uh, it's in 94. Douglas William Barr, a slot cheat in 94. Here's still a mobster that was banned in 97. William Dominic Camisano Jr. And another mobster band in 97, Anthony Civella, known as Tony Ripe, <laughs> a mob finger for, figure from Kansas City. This is in 97. Ronald Harris. This was an interesting one. In 97, Ronald Harris was put in the book. He was on the Nevada Gaming Control Board, and he's actually in the Black Book. He was a for, he was a gaming control board member 
who also was a computer expert who was able to rig slot machines. You may want to Google him, Ronald Harris. Jerry Dale Kreiner, a slot cheat in 97. Louis John Oljack, a card cheat in 97. John Joseph Conti, a mobster in 97. Stephen Sino, a mobster in 97. And Charles Panarella, a, mod, a mobster in 97. So look, we're talking about 20 years ago. The mob still was uh, relevant enough here, people being put in there. In fact, even in 99. You have Peter Joseph Ribaste, known as PJ, a mobster. Fred Pacente, who was a former Chicago police detective who served time for his connection to fraud, mail fraud in Illinois. I'm not sure why he ended up getting banned from uh, Nevada casinos, but he was. Michael DeBari, I think I skipped him, a slot cheater in 98. So, uh, I guess there were. Th- I guess I had this wrong. I thought there were. I thought there had been thirty-three. Now there's thirty-five. I guess there were thirty-five. Now there's thirty-seven. Because I see thirty-four and thirty-five. Uh, Michael Joseph Balsamo, a slot cheat. That was a ninety-nine. And uh, a bookie who also had uh, false passports. Peter J. Lenz was the last one put on there. And there were others that were nominated but not entered. They were considering putting them on, uh, but but it uh, never put in there. There were some who uh, were in the book before but removed for whatever reason. I'm not sure why these people got removed. There are actually 15, 16 who got remo- removed who were in there at one point, and others who, uh, and then there were six others who they were going through the motions to do it, and then ended up uh, withdrawing it and not uh, putting them in, except for one, Herbie Blitzstein, in '96, was going to be in the black book, but he was actually killed in an execution. A gangland-style execution in 96 before his hearing as to whether he'd be in the Black Book or not. So if you're dead before they put you in, then you're not in. So Herbie Blitzing avoided getting in the book by getting murdered in 96. I guess you can get out of it at some point, but nobody's been removed from it since 98. And there's only been two people since... uh, 1994 that have been re- that have been removed. There's only been two removals since 94, and only four removals since 1965. So it's hard, it's hard to get removed. So let's talk about the current case. This doesn't involve any mobster, but two new people are in the book. I guess it'd be number 36 and 37 for something they did at the Bellagio. 
back in 2012, 13, and 14. So th this is what happened here. Let me get to this here. I had this up, but I lost it. There were two guys who were making a lot of bets at craps called hop bets. A hop bet is an informal bet you can make at the craps table on what's going to be on each die that gets rolled. You know, two dice get rolled at a craps table. So you're not just betting the total of what's going to be rolled, but you're going to say, like, I, I think it's going to be a five and a one. I think it's going to be a five and a three. I think it's going to be two ones. I think it's going to be two sixes. That's, that's what's called a hop bet. And the way hop bets are placed is just by speaking it, putting the, the money on the table, on the crafts table in a, in a blank spot, and then just announcing I'm making a hop bet on such and such. And then the crafts dealer will pay you if, if you're right, and he'll take the money if you're wrong. The amount you get paid depends upon the likelihood of uh, those numbers being rolled. Now, the hardest ones to predict are the ones that are doubles. Ones, twos, threes, fours, fives, and sixes. Because basically, um, each die has to be on a specific number. So the chance of one of those hitting is 1 in 36. I, I don't know exactly what you get paid. You don't get paid 36 to 1 or there wouldn't be a house edge. You get paid something less than that, maybe 30 to 1 or something. But but that those are the hard, those are the ones that will pay the highest but are 1 in 36 to hit for you. Uh, the ones that are easier to hit are ones where you're uh, – that are not doubles bets because then – like let's say you say it's going to be a 5 and a 1. Well, you can either get a 1 and a 5 or a 5 and a 1. So you you have double the chance of hitting that than hitting a, a doubles. Anyway, that's not important here. I'm just explaining the hot bets. But here's here's the most important thing with a hot bet. Think of when you're at any kind of table game in Las Vegas. You can make all your bets pretty much by just motions. You don't have to say anything. Your chips do the talking. Let's think of a blackjack table. You... Uh, you put your money out before the dealer deals cards. That means I'm betting this much money on this hand. Then, let's say you're dealt a 7 and a 4 and you want to double. You put that same amount of money out, and that means I want to double. You don't have to say, I'm doubling. You just slide that money out, and that means you're doubling. You've committed to double at that point. Uh, if you're dealt two eights, and... Here you would say split just for clarity. It's pretty clear you're not going to be doubling on a 16. But then they will split. I mean, you, move, you moving the money next to the two eights will split it. Now let's say you have like two fives. There it's not clear if you want to split or double. So they'll sometimes ask you and you have to answer. So that's one of the few cases where you actually have to say what you're doing, not just uh, your money doesn't just do the talking. Your, your voice doesn't just do the talking. It, it, your, your chips have to do the talking usually. The reason your chips have to do the talking is because it's safer for the casino this way. This way there's no doubt that uh, of what each, what each person's doing. That the, number one, the person can't claim later they said something else because you have them on tape taking an action which means something. And number two, 
uh, it, it prevents any kind of collusion with the dealer to where the dealer can pretend to have heard something different depending upon what the result is at the table. So that's why they want as much as possible at these table games to be something they could just prove on camera even if they had no sound. So the hop bet was an exception to this. Where you just put your money down on a blank spot on the table. There's no space, at least back then. They've, they've added them since then because of this. But there was no space on craps tables back then for hop bets. You just would put your money down and say, I want to do a hop bet on one and five. I want to do a hop bet on three, three. So someone came up with an idea. I'm surprised it took all the way until 2012 to pull this. I mean, you had to get a, a willing craps dealer to go along with you. But someone came up with the idea. Hey, since the eye in the sky can't really see this, you know, they, they can't hear what's being said. They can only see. Why don't I just find a dealer that's in cahoots with me to act like I placed a winning hot bet when I really didn't? Now, the one other problem is other people can hear it. So if, like, let's say you say, I want to make a hot bet on 1-5. And then you put your money down. And then the person rolls a 3 and 4. And then the dealer goes, winner! Well, the other people at the table go, no, it's not a winner. That's, that's a loser. What are you doing? So that, that would become exposed very quickly. That, that's the one flaw there. So the only ways to prevent that, even if you have the dealer helping you here, is it, the only way to prevent others from figuring out what you're doing with the, and, and that you're in cahoots with the dealer to cheat the casino is either play when there's nobody else at the craps table, which is, which is hard to do. It's, it's hard to be alone at the craps table. Or... Say it in a mumbly, hushed voice to where people won't necessarily be able to tell what you really said. So that's what they were doing. Um, Anthony Grant Granito and James Russell Cooper were placed on the... uh, Nevada Gaming Control Board's list of people to be banned from all casinos, also known as the Black Book. And this is because they did this hotbed scandal, or scam. The, what they did was the mumbling trick. They had... Uh, they had two dealers helping them. One named Jeffrey Martin, the other named Mark Branco. And they were convicted as well. But uh, what, what they would do is they'd go in, they'd go to the craps table with their dealer friend there, who was going to help them win here. And they would say, hop bet. That's really what they do. To where numbers could not be heard by anybody else. They'd stand right next to the dealer. Hop at him. And then, oh, what do you know? Three and four, a winner. Okay, next bet. Hop bet. Oh, six and two, another winner. Hop bet. Two and two. Or sorry. Hop bet. Up oh, two and two, another winner. Wow, this person just, they, they can't get it wrong. Well, the problem is that 
While a single hop bet is never worse than 36 to 1 to hit, these geniuses did not think about the fact that if they hit a whole lot of them in a row, it becomes basically mathematically impossible to happen. So they hit so many hop bets in a row through this mumbling, uh, just nothing, and, and, and then the dealer claiming that mumble was the, the two numbers that actually hit. They did this so many consecutive times that for it to have just been luck for them to win that many straight, they would have had to have won. The, the odds of doing that would be $452 billion to one. Can you believe that? They didn't throw some losses in there to make it look real. They won so many that it was $452 billion to one that they could have been this lucky. Apparently they thought they were covering themselves by initially showing up and betting and losing. So I guess they would initially show up, bet fairly big, lose just from normally playing and losing. And then they they feel they felt at that point they established themselves as wild gamblers and, and losing betters, and then, then they started doing these hot bets, which were winning every time. And, and somehow they thought that wouldn't get caught. It's so stupid. This was back in two, between 2012 and 2014. They, they didn't do, obviously, they didn't do this every day, but in the time they were doing it, between August two, 2012 and July 2014, they did this at Bellagio and won... Uh, a pretty good sum of money. At Bellagio, they ended up winning one million dollars. More, one point two million dollars. They won. So in uh, 2016, all four people involved were convicted of theft and cheating, and they were sentenced to prison. Uh, Branco, the the craps dealer, one of the craps dealers, he he's actually still incarcerated. The other three have been since placed on probation. Um, actually, I'm not sure if the fourth guy. I know Branco was the was the craps dealer, and I know that uh, Granito and Cooper were the players. I don't know about this fourth guy. This fourth guy, Martin, I don't know if he was a player or if he was a dealer. So I don't want to get that wrong. But uh, the only one who's still in prison right now is Branco. But um, they were actually put into the Black Book. They were asked... Uh, they actually Granito and Cooper, who are now in the Black Book, they actually were offered a hearing, which I, I think has to be done to be in the black book. They have to have a hearing. And they actually declined the hearing. They said, no, I, we, don't want, we don't want to go to the hearing. So they just lost automatically and were put in the black book. I guess they were not expecting they're going to go in casinos anytime soon, wherever. Jeffrey Martin, the last guy, he may end up in the black book as well because he's just not there yet because they're going to be doing a hearing for him. He does want a hearing. Okay, so Jeffrey Martin actually was a player too. 
the only dealer was uh, Mark Branco. And Mark Branco apparently was the ringleader here. He was the one who, he was the craps dealer and the one who came up with the scheme. And he was sentenced to uh, up to 10 years. Jeffrey Martin apparently is a former professional baseball player. Let's see how far he got. He didn't make major leagues. I would have known, I think, but... Let's see here. Yeah, uh, Jeffrey Martin was a minor league pitcher drafted by the San Francisco Giants organization. He's now uh, 45 years old. He never made it to the majors. The highest he made was uh, double A. If you don't know baseball, uh, it goes rookie league. Single A, double A, triple A, and then the major. So sometimes the really good ones will skip triple A, but he he made it only to double A and hasn't pitched since 98. So he was only 25 when he uh, retired. Oddly, it looked like he had a fairly good year, so I wonder if he got injured. Because he played, he was at uh, Double A. Appeared in 31 games for Shreveport, a minor league team, and and had a 3.03 ERA and a 1.18 WHIP. Those are pretty good stats. So I, I don't understand why he would have. Uh, Retired at that point. I'm assuming maybe he got injured. But uh, it's possible they just released him, though. Possibly they just didn't like his stuff. Because he was 25. The truth is, in the minors, once you get around 25, you're considered old. And if, if you're not showing enough promise, they just get rid of you. So maybe even though his numbers were decent that year, maybe they just decided he wasn't going to ever make the majors. So he ended up a craps dealer, and he ended up uh, running this scheme. Those two are now in the black books, too. In fact, they, I believe they're the first craps cheats ever in the black book. Still not entirely sure if you're out of the black book if you're dead. The site I was reading you from... Had some people listed that were dead for sure, like the the guys added in 1960. But then it's saying that in this article, this other article I'm reading, this Review Journal article, it's claiming that these two just got added, the 33rd and 34th, who were just added there. But I'm seeing 35 already prior to them. But then it's, it's kind of hard for me to believe that of those 35, many of whom were added in... Uh, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that there's, there would only be two dead out of all of them, especially since I just verified the first one is dead. So of the remaining 34, there's really only one other dead? I don't believe it. Like a, like this Alvin Koahu. I bet he's dead from, 90, from 75. A lot of these mobsters don't live that long anyway because they get murdered. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if he's still alive. 
But I, I bet both of the guys added in, 60, in 1960 are dead. I mean, we're talking about almost uh, 60 years since then. Uh, whatever. Let's move on here. Still with us, Trader Risky? Yep. Okay, I haven't lost you here. When when were you coming to Vegas in like the eighties, early nineties? Early nineties. Did you notice anything? Maybe like eighty nine, ninety. Did you notice that, that that it seemed more mob influenced in those days than today? No, nah, I mean I probably started going right when the Mirage opened. Yeah, it was eighty nine, but I, I was I was coming around right. then too. I kind so. of I I saw some signs of it that that it it existed. I saw some signs. Yeah, since, I wasn't even paying attention. Things seemed different then. Yeah, I guess maybe I looked for it more. I mean, I'd just go there play poker. That was kind of that was kind of my trips. Yeah, well, I I couldn't play poker then because I was uh, too young. I, what I did occasionally to to gamble in Vegas. I've talked about this before. I, I'd, uh, I could play sports bets, and then if I – for some reason, they took sports bets from me as a 15-year-old. And I, and I didn't look any older than 15, but they would take them from me. But then if I won them, I'd give them to my dad to go cash. And then I figured just as far as going to the window to make the bet, it, you know, the worst they're going to do is turn me away. Uh, and then I also played video poker and just would have my back to the wall or my face to the wall. You know, my, my, I play a machine on the wall. Remember, my face is, is to the wall so they can't see my young face. Because I was tall enough then that uh, I wasn't as tall as I am now, but I was like an adult height at that point. And I could, uh, I figured as long as they can't see my face, they, they couldn't tell. And for the most part, I got away with it. Uh, only once was I caught playing blackjack, playing a video poker as a, uh, as a minor. I didn't actually try blackjack, though, until I was really 21. I just figured they're going to try to ID me. And how did you get caught with your bucket of coins or sitting at the thing? They just came up and asked you? No, they just came up and asked me. And, and uh, what I did was uh, I would hit cash out every single time I won a hand so I wouldn't have money in the machine. Because I knew, even as a 15-year-old, that they could not confiscate money in my pocket. They could only confiscate money that was in the machine. So I just hit cash out every single time. And just one of the times a security guard came close enough to be able to see that I was a kid and came up and said, hey, can I see some ID? And my response to him about the ID was, I forgot it. <laughs> so then he gave me a speech about I could be arrested for underage gambling, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, sorry, I'm leaving. And I walked away. So that was it. But I, I still came back. And played again in the future. I, I didn't let that scare me. I, I wasn't like playing all the time. I would just kind of play occasionally. Like I'd bring like a twenty dollar bill, and if that if I lost that, that would be done. I played jacks are better. Was there even anything else besides jacks are better in nineteen eighty seven? I don't think there was. Yeah, I don't recall, but yeah, I'd imagine so. Okay, so I want to talk about another form of gambling. And that is about must-hit machines, as I just tried one. These have been around for a while. Uh, I think probably for seven years or maybe more. They've been around for quite some time. And a must-hit machine, as I explained at the beginning of the show, is a slot machine with a jackpot that cannot exceed a certain amount. And if it does exceed, you know, it, well, it, it won't exceed the amount. Once it gets to that amount, it has to hit a jackpot at that point. 
Now, you may wonder, well, how could it have to hit a jackpot? Are you saying these machines are rigged? Well, kind of. What happens is there's a random number generator that picks a point when the jackpot's going to hit. So let's say a must hit 5,000. That means that the jackpot can never get past $5,000. That the very highest the jackpot can ever be is 5,000. It can never be 5,001 cent or higher. So what the what the machine does is every time a jackpot is hit, it uses the random number generator to pick a new time for the jackpot's going to hit. So, for example, it picks uh, $4,914.12. And when it gets to $4,914.12, then the jackpot automatically hits. That's, that's in the machine's programming to do that. So the machine knows when it's going to hit in advance, but there's no way for the players to know this. So it doesn't take a genius to say, well, all right, if it must hit by 5000 well, why don't I just start playing these when the jackpot meter is at, at 4,995? Then I don't have to play that much to move the meter up to 5,000, because every time you spin the machine, the move, meter moves up a bit. So you go, well, what if it's at 4,995? I'll just come only play it when it says that, and uh, and I'm guaranteed to win because uh, you know it'll move up $5, and then I'll hit 5,000 at some point in, in that period. And it's, it's true, you will. So... Why doesn't everybody just do that? Well, because you'll never get a machine like that. Because it's it's very obvious to everyone that this can be done. Once someone is close to the must-hit amount, they're going to just keep playing. No matter how much they're down, they're going to keep playing, knowing they're going to get 5000 back shortly. The only time someone leaves is if they run out of money and they can't get uh, someone to bring them more. But uh, unless you are really broke and you have no friends that are willing to help you, you're just not going to leave. So let, let's say I, I'm playing a must-hit machine, it must hit 5,000, and it's at 49.97, and I bust. I, I, I'm out of money. You think I'm going to stand up and leave? Of course not. I'm going to call one of my friends and say, hey, uh, come bring down some money for me. Let me explain to you what's happening here. It's guaranteed that 5000 is going to come back to me and it's guaranteed that I'm going to spend less than 5000 to get there. I just don't have the money to spend, so bring it down here and we'll hit it and I'll give you something extra for your trouble. And, if, you know, in fact, I'll even guarantee you that uh, you won't lose money, that you know, no matter what happens, I'll pay you back whatever lo- you lose here because I know it can't happen. You can't lose at this point. So just about everybody knows someone who can bring them enough of money to, you know, to go continue with this or maybe even have someone else buy into this at this point. So very few people are going to be dumb enough to stand up at something like forty nine ninety five. So you have to get these machines at a point where they're high enough to where it's positive expectation to keep playing them till the jackpot hits. Uh, but low enough to where people will have left them at that point. And there's been some discussion and debate in the advantage player communities of what is that number. And it's actually kind of a complicated answer. It depends what type of machine and what type of manufacturer. There's some people who are real experts on this that uh, that I've found that have been discussing this. So I was uh, told 
about a must-hit machine that was at a certain casino I won't name. And, and that machine also was at a casino that had a, a good promotion separate from this for new players. And I had not been to this casino before. So I figured, okay, that's going to be kind of two birds with one stone thing. I'll come there and I'll you know, get a new card, get this new great promotion, and then also play this, uh, this must-hit machine. The must-hit machine was at 4870, and it had, it had to hit by 5,000. And then there was also a smaller jackpot there. The must hit, there was a must-hit 500 on there that, uh, that goes up at the same time. And that one, as I said, can't, hit, can't ex- exceed 500, and you'll get whatever that one hits. So you get whatever the jackpot says it is. So if, if it's must-hit 5,000 and it hits at 49.91, you get $4,991. So this one that I started playing on, it was at 4870, must hit 5,000. And the smaller meter on it was like at, that was pretty close. That was at like 475, must hit 500. So I was playing, and anyone who plays these machines will notice that other than these must hit jackpots, the odds are very bad. Why? Well, because they have to have a way to cover the fact that a jackpot must hit. Because the small jackpot of 500 hits, and then the, 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 and also the bigger jackpot of 5,000 hits, and that, that's guaranteed money to be given away to the players, so they have to make the machine odds bad enough to cover for that, plus for the machine to make a healthy profit, as, as they do. So basically, when you're not hitting one of those two, the machine sucks. And you have to keep that in mind, and there's, there's pretty big variance in these machines for that reason. So, I was playing this, and there was something I wondered. I wondered, okay, so I know it's a random number generator picking when it's going to hit, but is it weighted towards the end? Because obviously it's to the casino's advantage for the must-hit jackpot to hit at the very, very end, at forty nine ninety nine ninety nine. If it hits earlier, then less bad odds play has to be put in to get to that point. So the casino makes more money the later it is. So I knew it had to be chosen at random, but perhaps is it heavily weighted to be at the end? Now when you hit it, when a jackpot is hit at this type of machine, at least at the one I was playing, the meter goes back to 4,000, and, and for the small one it goes back to 200, would you believe? So in, the, in its worst state, the machine would be at 4,000 for the must-hit 5,000 jackpot and 200 for the must-hit uh, 500. So I had wondered, might it just be random? Or is it weighted to, towards the end? Or is it heavily weighted towards the end, where it's unlikely that it's anything but the very, very end? <clears throat> well, I got my answer. <laughs> I played I, I committed to play all the way through Until both of them hit So I was opening myself to losing money there If it hit late I did have some free play Because of the promotions so That made it not as bad But I, I committed That, uh, that I was going to do that and play all the way through no matter what. And I had enough of a bankroll on me to be doing that. 
so I played it, and the five thousand, the, the the I knew the five hundred would hit fairly soon because it was already at four seventy five, and that meter moves faster. And I was going to play for a while to move the forty eight seventy up. So I knew I knew I'm hitting the the five hundred once, and I I did I hit it once at pretty like four ninety something. So that already made me suspicious. But the five thousand, remember, it can hit any time between four thousand and five thousand. The five thousand jackpot hit at forty nine ninety nine thirty one. <laughs> Almost as late as it possibly can. Forty nine ninety nine and thirty one cents is when it hit. So I said this couldn't be a coincidence. This couldn't be that I was just so unlucky that it has to hit somewhere between four thousand and five thousand and it hits at forty nine ninety nine and thirty one cents. I go, this seems rigged as hell. This seems super rigged. And you know, you may wonder how much did I win or lose. Well, I lost. I lost eighteen hundred, but I a thousand of that was free play. So eight hundred actually got lost from my pocket here. And the free play was earned while I was playing this machine. It wasn't existing free play that I could have just run somewhere else. Uh, so. Yeah, so this was uh, free play I earned while playing the machine that I didn't have before I walked in there. So um, this gave me an $800 loss, which I wasn't happy about. Now, as far so you as... Had to have, you had to run through, it sounds like, like 7300 I, I to get for 130 for you were you were just 130 bucks away. I'm not sure how much moved the meter. Um, I, someone else analyzed this on on my Vegas Casino Talk forum. I, I discussed it on there. Uh, I'm not sure how much each spin moves the meter, but I did. Uh, I lost 6,800 worth of of. Uh, yeah, I lost 7,300. You're right. I, I lost 7,300 worth of uh, of coin in. Uh, I lost $7,300 not counting the jackpot and not counting the free play. That's correct. And then I hit a 500 jackpot and a 5,000 jackpot and a 1,000 was free play, so I actually lost 800 Yeah, yeah. If that's what you're trying to say. So that shows yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So, but so, I'm just saying, so, I mean, even though it looks close at forty-eight seventy when you got there. Yeah, I still lost, really right, close. I lost 7,300 cycling through there and then got, Fifty-five hundred back plus a thousand of free play, so I lost eight hundred. So, so, but I asked. I, I decided I, I wanted to know more. You know, it was an interesting experiment. It was an interesting uh, thing I was trying to do there. But I, I wanted to know from people who knew better than me about these must hits. Of what, when was the right time to start playing? So I asked, and and there on Vegas Casino Talk, there are some people, some of these uh, slot advantage players who who are really experienced and, and know this stuff really well. And and one of them responded, and in fact, he was actually able to guess what type of machine I was playing. I was playing one called River Dragons. So I was pretty impressed that he could guess without me describing all that much about it. And it's it, it's he said it's it's a machine made by a company called AGS. It's called River Dragons. There's also ones called Forest Dragons, Firewolf, or Wolf Queen. And he said these games always run to forty nine ninety. And he said you'll probably end up losing if you pl- if you go in for anything lower than forty nine thirty. 
Now, there were two factors that he wasn't really thinking about when he wrote that. It was the, Number one, the 500 was about to hit. Though that was going to hit at some point anyway, probably, no matter what, with running that much coin. And, and, and second, I, I, was gonna, I was earning free play and then using the free play while playing the machine, which also allows me to enter you know, lower than 49.30 and still be positive. But uh, anyway, that... I did verify to him that indeed it was River Dragons. And I told him all the stats. I entered at 4870. I told him how much I lost. I told him how much it was free play. So he actually figured out that I ran th- almost 50k th- coin in through there. And based on his previous observations of the machine... And that uh, the machine is only at about 85%, 83 to 85% payback. He says when he ran it, because what is random on the machine is what you hit along the way. So when you, you know, if you ignore the jackpot part, just the regular slot machine part is random. So you can get lucky and win in the short term there, obviously. And that part's not, that, that's not set on a cycle. You, you, you could get super lucky and win over a short period of time, but, uh, so he said when he had played it, he lost, he found it was paying 83% back. You know, basically that uh, $83 out of every 100 wagered on average would be returned by the machine. He said, I ran actually a little bit better than he did. I, I, he said, mine ran at about 85%. But that's still pretty bad. That's still a really bad, even for slot machines. Most slot machines run at about like 90%, 91% payback to the player. This is 83 to 85 so it shows you how bad the machine is when you're not hitting it. So that's why it's very important to enter at the right time. So what he was saying is that there's so many people who, who are aware of these must-hits and how important it is to play when they're fairly close that uh, it's hard to find one that's open that's at the right number, that's at 49.30 or higher. That's why he doesn't bother much with them because you're just, you're just not going to see it open at that point. And if you do see one, if you ever walk by a must-hit machine, there's a lot of these all over the place. If you ever walk by a must-hit machine, and it's something like 49-something, especially you know, past 49.30 out of 5,000, or or even the, the small one, even the, the 500 being very close, at this, you know, the smaller of the two jackpots, uh, you may want to play it, because it, it does have to hit by then, and it, and it does, the meter does go up every time you spin it. So these are – there's one thing I wanted to mention with these that bothers me, and about not about me personally. I knew what I was doing when I came to them. I knew I was there to try to hit the jackpot in enough time to where uh, I'm ahead money. I knew that entering at 48.70 was marginal, but I figured the free play I was earning during that was – kind of making up for some of that. Turned out it was... I didn't think it was going to hit 49.99. If I knew that, I wouldn't have played at 48.70. But here's what really bothers me about these machines. And that is, I think they're a scam to the average player. And sure enough, I saw people who were sitting there playing with the big jackpot at 46.50 and the little one at 3.30. They had no chance. They're never going to hit the jackpot there. So these people sit down, 
and they play a machine that's paying way worse than other machines, 83 to 85%, when most machines are paying like 90. So they sit down at a terrible machine where the only saving grace is hitting that must-hit jackpot, and they don't know that they have just about no chance to hit it in the time they're going to play. Not just a small chance, but like an infinitesimally small chance to where the chance of it showing up at 46-something is almost zero. And they can get away with this legally because the only requirement is that it can technically hit anywhere in the 4,000 to 5,000 range, but you can wait it as much as you want. As long as it's like a one in a billion chance, that's fine. So that's total BS. And I saw people, I saw people playing it who didn't understand they had no chance. Who really just assumed, okay, must hit by 5,000. Okay, that means it could hit any time between here and 5,000. No, it doesn't. It means it's going to hit at 49.90 something. Maybe occasionally 49.70 something, 49.80 something. You're never going to see it at 48 something, 47 something, 46 something. Definitely not at 4,000 when it resets. It resets to 4,000. Who's playing it then? Can you imagine people are actually sitting when it's at 4,000 and running it up? (laughs) So I think what's very, very misleading about these is that they're allowed to wait it. It tricks the average player who doesn't understand that they can wait it towards the end. People are playing for a jackpot that they pretty much cannot hit. And I think the legal requirement for these should be that they can't wait it. That it really does have to hit just any time between 4,000 and 5,000. Now still, you'd have a, a, a much better chance, it'd be much more positive expectation to play later on. Because there's a much smaller range in which it can hit. So that you, you could still do the same play as an advantage player. But it would give the recreational players a fair shot at it. At least it could hit. At least it has an... Uh, the same chance the only reason it's not the same chance even under that is because there's just a a smaller range of numbers if you see it at 4900 it hasn't hit yet then you know at most you only have to go 100 you know the first 900 has already been eliminated but at least it had the chance to hit from the 4000 to 4900 it just didn't here it doesn't have the chance to hit it or, or virtually doesn't and that's where I think the scam comes in that's where I think that's not fair that's where it should be illegal. So, never underestimate what these casinos and slot manufacturers will do to cheat the unsuspecting public. This is, I mean, yes, people know slot machines are a losing proposition. They know the odds are with the house. Fine. When you sit down and you see a big jackpot in front of you, of course you know your chance to win that jackpot is very small. Okay, we all know that. I've known that since I was a little kid seeing these in, in, in casinos. But I've never seen it where a jackpot is sp- specifically weighted to where it can't hit at a certain time and you believe it can. Where it virtually can't. If it's one in many millions or one in a billion, I, I still say it can't. Especially for the reward being $5,000. It's one thing if there's a, a, a tiny, tiny chance of hitting something but the reward is many millions. This is a tiny, tiny chance of only hitting and the reward is 5000 where you could lose thousands getting there. So, 
Those are pretty obnoxious. Shouldn't be legal. Speaking of legality in casinos, I want to tell you about something you may not be aware of. I wasn't aware of it until recently. In fact, when I first heard it, I doubted it. But it's true. Any points that you earn at a casino from your play are yours. They're not just promotional points that they can take away from you willy-nilly. They actually have value, and you have a right to them. And if the the casino bans you or takes them away, you have a right to demand them back. And you can demand them back through Nevada gaming if necessary. Now, again, I'm only talking about Nevada. This may not be true in other states. But in Nevada, if you have earned points of any kind... And the casino will not let you redeem them because they either have taken them away from you or because you have uh, uh, been kicked out of the property or because you've been excluded from playing the games there. Then they have to find another way to cash them out for you. Many times the casino will refuse anyway and tell you you don't know what you're talking about if you say that you have a right to those points. And that's when you go to gaming. This actually came up recently. There's a pretty well-known video poker player named Bob Dancer, and he's he's done seminars, he's put out books. He's pretty well-known in the video poker and advantage play community, but also just as a kind of a gambling figure. Someone who's who's put out a lot of blogs and he's done gambling radio shows and he's uh, put out books and seminars. As I said, he's a, if you Google him, you can read about Bob Dancer. He's an older guy. He's probably near 70 now. And Bob Dancer blogged recently. If you look up his blog, you can find it. That he just went to Nevada Gaming about a casino called The Rainbow in Henderson, Nevada. Henderson is near Las Vegas. Basically, he got kicked out of a casino for engaging in advantage play, which is not against the law, it's just, but they, they do have a right to remove you for it. And he had earned some points, and they didn't want to give him his points. So then he actually spoke, and the, the points were exchangeable for, uh, for free play or for cash, by the way. But he couldn't do either because he was banned. So he demanded them and he actually got to speak to the owner of, of the casino, and the owner actually did agree to cash out his points. But the reason he went to gaming was that when he cashes out his points, he's only getting them at half value. So that you're getting, I think he had $2,400 worth of points, and you can either run it as 2400 in free play or 1200 straight cash. So the owner said, okay. First he offered him 800 then he said, no. He said, okay, fine, I'll give you the full 1200 and he said, no, that's the, that's the full 1200 for the cash option, but I don't want the cash option. I want the free play option, but you're not letting me in your casino to run it. So he said, okay, well, either let me in your casino to run the 2400 or give me 2400 cash, or let me transfer the 2400 to a friend so that guy can run it and give me the money. And the casino said, no, we're, we're doing none of these things. We're going to give you 1200 cash, and that's it. 
So he went to gaming. I think he's going to lose that case. And the reason I think he's going to lose that case is because they do have a clearly stated cash option, and it's semi-reasonable. 50% is not very good value, but it's not like they're giving him 5%. So I, I think since he can exchange it for cash the same way any other player could exchange it for cash, just because it's not the optimal use of the points, which is using it for free play, uh, I think the game is going to say, no, you know, you, you can exchange it for cash like anybody else can there. I think that's going to be the ruling. But let's just get back to general and forget about Bob Dancer. I'm just citing that as something that's going on right now that's along these lines. So if you have points at a casino and they're taken away from you, what do I mean by points? I mean like rewards credits at Caesars. I mean like uh, any kind of points that are equivalent to some kind of comp that you can use on the property. Um, any kind of points that are for some kind of gift giveaway, like the great gift wrap-up at Caesars, for example. Um, any, Basically, anything you've earned from your play. Now, what can't you claim a right to? You can't claim a right to offers based upon future play. So like when you get offers in the mail, come to our casino and get 300 free play. You, If you're banned, even if they make that offer to you, you can't just go there and claim your 300 free play, nor can you force them to give you $300. Why? Because they're making this offer, come here, and once we, once you come here, we'll give this to you. You haven't earned it yet. The only way you can earn it is by redeeming the offer and coming there, and since you're not allowed there, you can't come there, therefore uh, they don't have to give it to you legally. But if it's something you've already earned, if you've accumulated points from your existing play that you already have without ever having to walk back in the casino again, then those are your points. And you can go to Nevada Gaming to force them to give them to you. Now, when this happens, it's always better to first negotiate with a casino. It's always better to go to the casino and Maybe try to have them remove your ban. It's always better to go to them and see if you can settle it with them because the truth is once you go to gaming, they're definitely never going to remove your ban. Any possible sympathy you can get from them, any possible goodwill, any possible forgiveness you can get from them is out the window once you report them to gaming. Now, if, if you're not banned and you report them to gaming for something else, that's a different story. But I'm talking about if you are banned and then also report them to gaming to get extra money out of them, they're never letting you back in the door. So you only do this if either you don't care about coming back or you know they're not letting you back anyway, so F it. So that's what Dancer said about this rainbow place. He said, well, I'm banned there. They're never going to lift my ban, so screw it. I might as well go to gaming and try to claim my rightfully earned points. So keep that in mind if that happens to you. Now, there are some exceptions. First of all, if you've earned the points through cheating, they have a right to take them away. If you have earned your points through some sort of malfunction, they have a right to take them away. 
Now, malfunction is different than them just overcomping something. If they stupidly overcomp you, stupidly let you earn too many points, but it's not from a malfunction or an obvious uh, mistake. Like, if you're earning a thousand times the points you normally should, they can claim that's a mistake and not let, and not honor it. If you're earning six times the points you normally should, they can't. They can't they, then they can't make that case. And who decides this? The gaming would decide this. But, but basically, any points you've rightfully earned for yourself that are redeemable for something, they have to either let you redeem it the way that anyone could redeem them or give you the cash equivalent. So don't let them just run off with your points if you get banned from somewhere. Now, what I'm wondering about, I don't know the answer to this part, is what if your points expire in some way? For example, at Caesars, their rewards credits, their RCs, will expire if you have no activity for six months. Now, there's ways to prevent this from happening, like you can get the total rewards credit card, which has no fees, and then just spend a dollar on it, and then that earns you one reward credit, and that technically gives you activity, and then that resets the clock for six more months. But what if you just don't do any of that? Then yes, you will lose all your reward credits. Could you go to gaming about that? I'm guessing you probably couldn't, because as long as it's stated that these points have an expiration, I think then they expire and that's it. I'm not sure about this, though. There's also the matter of what happened to Bellagio. Something dirty happened over there. I found out a bit more about it recently, in fact. People were very angry when this was in, uh, in 2017. They found that their points had mostly vanished. Poker players at Bellagio. Only poker players. Bellagio had a weird system, and still does have a weird system, where the poker comps and the comps everywhere else through the M-Life program are separate. So you don't earn any M-Life points playing poker. Instead, you earn separate comps through a totally different system at like $2 an hour. And then you accumulate them, and then when you want to use it, you can only use it for food at Bellagio. You can't use it for any free play or to pay the rake. All you can use the points for is food. And you have to go and have a shift supervisor print out a comp form, a paper comp for you, to take to whatever restaurant you want to use. So you go and say, uh, yeah, I want $15 for the snacks restaurant. And they print out $15 and then debit $15 from the points you've earned. That's how it works at Bellagio. That's how it's worked for a very long time. But last year, at some point, people were really angry to find that most of their accumulated points were just gone. Some people had thousands of points they had accumulated over time and just felt that they had as long as they wanted to spend them. And they did. But then one day in 2017, they were mostly gone. Well, because Bellagio abruptly changed their system... To where it became a rolling year expiration. What do I mean by rolling year? I mean that any points you earned more than a year ago are gone. That's how it works. So so right now at Bellagio, any points I earned 
between November 21st, 2017 and November 20th, 2018 right now? I will have, except for the ones I spent. Any points I earned before November 21st, 2017 are gone. doesn't matter how much I earned or how much I spent. Anything I earned before November 21st, 2017 is gone. Why? Because that's that'd be more than a year ago. So this just abruptly happened. So people who had been accumulating points for years lost all of those points. The only points they kept of what they've earned, what they had earned in the past calendar year, and then still the calendar rolls and keeps knocking those points off every day. Now, yes, when you spend points, it, it, it takes away from the oldest points first, but that doesn't help you if, if it just grabbed all your points without you even knowing. So there's people who lost thousands of dollars in points there. I personally lost over 200. The shift supervisors tried to help out by giving you 15 free dollars here, 15 free dollars there, but they, they couldn't make up for anywhere near what people lost. I finally spoke to someone high up at the Bellagio poker room who told me what happened. I wasn't totally thrilled with this explanation. I just had this conversation a few weeks ago. But I was told that uh, this decision came down from upper management at the Bellagio, someone above poker. Someone just who decided that... uh, they didn't like the fact that people just had these comps that they accumulated that they could just keep using for free food at their restaurants there. So they, they didn't want... It's stupid because the person really earned them. Why, you know, who cares how long it's been? It wasn't even an inactivity thing. You could be playing there every day. And this has still happened to you. That the people who were hardest hit were the ones who played almost every day. That's why they had so many points. But, but they, they didn't like the idea that people who earned points back in 2005 still had them and could use them for food in 2017 and beyond. So they said, screw it. We're just taking them away. You, you have a year to earn whatever, to use whatever points you earned. What they should have done is grandfathered the old points and started the new points on that rolling system and then warned everybody. Then that would be fine. But here they just took them away. But apparently this came down abruptly from upper management and there was nothing the poker room could do, so they claimed. I think that's crap because I think the poker room either should have, one, gone to bat harder for the players or, or two, uh, come up with some sort of thing with upper management to uh, either delay this or you know, you know, give people warning, grandfather points, or, or at least come up with a system to where they can... Uh, give some compensation to players who got hit by this. But none of those things happen. Except for some very small concessions made. So I wonder if you could have gone to gaming on that one. Because that was not an expiration that was ever uh, made clear to any players. It just was dropped on people abruptly. Had I lost 2,000, I probably would have gone to gaming. When I lost the 200, I didn't want to create a whole stink with the Bellagio and their poker room about this. But it's pretty bad. The reason this law is in place, the reason that gaming treats these points this way, 
is because points can be used as a way to entice gamblers to come down. That can influence people's decision to play games. Okay, I'm playing this machine. Okay, I know the odds are against me. But I know I'm earning you know, such and such percent back in points for, for, for everything I play. So that's worth something to me. Okay, I'll go do it. So that's why the, the casinos can't just willy-nilly take it away from you. You've come down and gambled. You've earned them. Nope, we're taking them away. We're not honoring it now because we don't like you anymore. So basically the gaming position is that if they don't want you there in the future, if they want to make future offers to you, if they want to rescind future offers they've made for you, fine. But anything you've already earned, you can keep. So keep that in mind. And as I said, I'm, I may be having to make my own gaming complaint if I, I can't get this thing resolved with a casino where right now I do have some points and I was banned for something I didn't do. I got a call this week about it and I was so surprised when I heard some of the information told to me I couldn't believe it. I could not believe of what I was being accused of doing. I was actually like in shock. I kept saying, please, please review everything you can. Please, I want you to see everything. I want you to look at everything. Because you will see I did not do this. Really weird. All right. Um, This is the longest show since I got my LPR, by the way. We are almost to the end, though. I want to give a quick legal sports betting update. Before I do that, uh, I'm, I've been doing NBA unders again. I just want to tell everybody, I, I, I'm sticking only to unders. I've decided I'm not betting on sides. Maybe every once in a while, but for the most part, I'm just doing unders on the NBA. That's what I did by far the best with last year, especially in the first uh, in November and December. I really kicked ass on unders. So I'm doing them again. Unfortunately, the NBA season, uh, it's different this year because they've changed the rules as far as the offensive rebounds, that they, the clock is shorter, so that drives us, the points totals up higher. And it's harder to predict than it used to be. And then the second problem is that there's a lot more emphasis this year than ever on three-point shooting and less emphasis on defense than ever. So that also has driven up scores and made the whole totals in the NBA thing tougher to handicap. So in my first four picks this year, I got clobbered. Three of them didn't even come close. One of them won, but barely because of a lucky fourth quarter where all the, both teams took out their starters and hardly anyone scored, and I barely won it. So that should have been a loss, to be honest. And I also tied one after that. But then, since then, I've won four straight, and all of them pretty decisively, including tonight. So... If you go to the Flying Stupidity wagering thread in the Flying Stupidity forum on PokerFraudAlert.com, or if you go to the sports and sports betting forum of Vegas Casino Talk, if you want to be able to see it easier because there's a lot fewer posts, you can follow my NBA unders picks. 
And I usually post them fairly close to game time, so you're not going to have a lot of time to get them out. But if you'd like to follow them and bid along with them, then I'm happy to have you to do that. When I know I'm doing well is when I'm not only winning bets, but when I'm winning by wide margins. If you're getting lucky, if you if you bet on under 220 and the game finishes with 219, that's not skill. You got lucky there. That means it finished right where it was supposed to finish, and it just happened to fall on the right side for you. When the total is 220, you bet under, and the total ends up being 190, you, you did a good job. Well, tonight, I, I had under... 219 on Toronto Orlando Final was 93.91 184 points So I, I won that by a massive amount Day before I won by, by like 20 or 22 points So I, I had this last year In November and December A lot of my wins were, for, were by 20 or more points On these unders So when you're doing that When you're winning by that margin so often You know you're doing something right when a lot of your wins are very close, then you're just getting lucky. I'm not guaranteeing I'm going to keep winning. At the moment, I've only made nine picks. I'm 5-3-1. and one. I actually t- kind of took a little break while I was reanalyzing what was going on because the season changed. But that, that's not what I want to talk about. I, just, that's, uh, I, just wanted, I said sports. It reminded me. The... Legalized sports situation, I've mentioned on many shows that sports betting is no longer illegal in states other than Nevada. The federal government has now decided to back off, and they've uh, repealed the law that was preventing sports betting in other states. So it's now up to the states if they want to have sports betting. I promised updates every so often, so I'm going to give one now. We now have seven states that provide legalized sports betting. Nevada was the first one, and it's existed for a long time, but the new ones. Delaware was the next one in June. New Jersey was the next one also in June. Mississippi in August. They were the fourth. West Virginia in late August was the fifth. We have two new ones since then. New Mexico now offers legalized sports betting. The first sports bet was taken on October 16, 2018 at the Santa Ana Star Casino and Hotel. And New Mexico's a little bit weird. They haven't passed any new sports betting laws. So you say, well, then how could this be? Uh, the Santa Ana Star Casino and Hotel, they made their agreement through a gaming compact with the state. So they are taking full sports betting there, except any games involving the University of New Mexico or New Mexico State University. You can't bet on either of those teams for obvious reasons. And there's no pro teams in New Mexico, so they don't have to worry about that. Pennsylvania, the newest one. Pennsylvania booked the first legal sports bets just a few days ago. Now, they had a sports betting bill in place over a year ago, even before the... May 2018 Supreme Court ruling making it to where states like Pennsylvania could make it legal. But it it still took some time, so it took until mid-November of this year for 
a bet to be placed in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania, you can now sports bet. What's coming next? Rhode Island. They don't have it all in place yet, but they do have uh, language allowing sports betting in the latest uh, state budget that was signed. The state lottery would oversee the process. There is no, there's nothing in the new law in Rhode Island to allow online or mobile betting. It would have to be in-person betting, but it you still can't do it, but it's coming soon. New York. That would be a big one. Because right now the, the big states uh, don't have it yet. We don't have it in New York, don't have it in California, don't have it in Florida. But uh, we don't have it in Texas. But New York, it's coming. They passed a law it, way back in 2013, allowing full sports betting. They just uh, It just couldn't be done because of the federal law. But uh, they're trying to revive that to apply to today. So we will see where that goes. Arkansas. In the election we just had, the midterm election in November 2018, Arkansas voters approved Issue 4, which was a constitutional amendment that would bring expanded gambling, which includes sports betting, to four different counties in the state. So that was passed. Now they just have to officially get some regulations down and and some licenses and all that, and uh, they will have sports betting as well. So look for it soon. Rhode Island, New York, and Arkansas. So that is... Where you think that's where the gambling's coming next? Other ones where it's possible, but nothing much has happened yet. California, Kansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina, Washington D.C., Maryland, and Connecticut. They've started to have some signs of activity but uh, not much everywhere else it's going to be a long time or never happen where is it least likely to happen Utah where is it second least likely to happen Hawaii those are the two most anti-gambling states those are also the only two states with no legalized gambling of any kind Greektown Casino in Detroit. It's one of three casinos in Detroit. I'm not counting Caesars Windsor, which is in Canada, right across the river. But there's three casinos in Detroit, and Greektown is the third largest one there. They've been sold for a lot of money. A lot of money went to those that uh, sold Greektown. How much did it go for? One million dollars. No, of course not. How much did it really go for? One hundred billion dollars. 
No, 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 no. Yeah, silence, silence. It's not a hundred million. It's not a hundred billion. One billion dollars. Still a lot. A one billion dollars for the third largest Detroit area casino. Wow. So who bought it? Who sold it? Who bought it? Jack Entertainment sold it, and it was bought by Penn National Gaming and Vici Properties. So, so what's Penn National and what is Vici? And what is Jack for that matter? Well, Jack is actually owned by Dan Gilbert. Where might you recognize that name, Dan Gilbert, if you're an NBA fan? Oh, yeah, he's the majority owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. He used to go back and forth with LeBron whenever LeBron was talking about leaving and then eventually did leave Cleveland. He had that on-again, off-again, love-hate thing with LeBron, Dan Gilbert. He also co-founded Quicken Loans. So he owns Jack Entertainment. They did own Greektown. They no longer own it. Now uh, Penn National Gaming owns it. They they actually have 41 properties in 19 different states, Penn National Gaming, mostly small casinos, small to medium casinos. Uh, but uh, some are, are ones you've heard of. Their brands include Argosy, Hollywood Casino, La Auberge, Boomtown, Ameristar, and also they have uh, Tropicana Las Vegas and the M Resort. So those two properties in Vegas they own as well. That's Penn National Gaming. So they've bought Greektown, but Vici Properties has also bought Greektown. So what is Vici Properties? It's V-I-C-I, Properties, all, all in caps. What is Vici Properties? You might remember that I've mentioned them before. Believe it or not, this is going to sound really weird to you, but believe it or not, Vici Properties is Caesars. Now, how's that possible? How, how, how is Caesars and Penn National Gaming, your competitors, how are they buying it together? Well, you might remember, or maybe it'll surprise you if you don't remember, that Vici Properties actually owns a lot of Caesars properties, including all the ones in Las Vegas. Yeah. But it actually kind of is Caesars. Let me explain. Uh, During the Caesars bankruptcy reorganization... They uh, they were doing all these spinoffs in an attempt to protect the most valuable portions of their business. So Vici Properties was formed as part of the Chapter 11 bankruptcy reorganization of the Caesars Entertainment Operating Company, which is the largest division of Caesars Entertainment, which is a spinoff itself. So when Caesars Entertainment Operating Company was put into bankruptcy in January 2015, then uh, Caesars proposed splitting that, that, that spinoff into two companies, 
uh, one which would own the company's casinos and the other one which would uh, manage them. Uh, several members of Congress, by the way, opposed that. So, and it had to do with, with favorable tax treatment, that's why. Anyway, so what happened was that uh, Vichy was spun off. And it actually ended up being owned by the uh, the creditors of Caesars Entertainment Operating Company. So that spinoff was completed on October 6, 2017. That's when when Caesars uh, got out of the bankruptcy. So that, that was, it was kind of like the settlement for uh, the creditors. So it's not really Caesars, but it kind of is Caesars. You know, it, it, I should say it came from Caesars. It's not really... Vici is not Caesars, but it came from Caesars. So what's going on is that uh, Vici buys property that casinos are on and then leases it back to them. They'll actually buy it from the casino and then lease it back to them. By the way, the, the name Vici is actually from the Latin phrase Veni, Vidi, Vici, which means I came, I saw, I conquered, which was attributed to Julius Caesar. And, of course, Julius Caesar is what Caesar is named after, so that, that's where they came up with Vici. So, Vici bought 19 casinos and racetracks race of Caesar's properties from Caesars and four golf courses and then lease them back to Caesars at a total annual rent of $630 million. They also uh, two months later bought the land for uh, the land and the properties of uh, Harris Las Vegas for 1.1 billion and then leased it back at 87.4 million. MGM actually tried to acquire Vici. But instead, uh, that, that didn't happen. Uh, Vici's board rejected it and ended up having an IPO. And they raised $1.2 billion on an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange in February 2018. In mid-2018, Vici moved its headquarters from New York City to Las Vegas. So they've, they've since been uh, expanding now, and they're buying other properties, not just Caesars properties. They're buying other properties and leasing them back. This, this is what Vici does. It's really weird. They buy these casino properties and then lease them back. Now, what, what's the point of this, you may wonder? Why, why would Caesars and other properties sell the physical property and the land to this other company and then lease it back? Why, why not just own it? Why would they ever do that? Well, because it gives them... There's a number of reasons. So you can tax shelter or something. Yeah, it's once for tax. Also, they, uh, they they get immediate cash to operate with. Uh, also, uh, usually Vici has to uh, maintain these properties. This falls upon them to maintain. So they, they 
these companies are shielded from uh, maintenance issues and things like that that cost them money. So you know, they, they all have different agreements. They're not always required to maintain them, Vici. But it, it, so anyway, that's, that, that's why this is all being done. So Vici actually got involved in this purchase of Greektown, where they bought the property and, and the land. And Penn National bought the casino and the gambling. So basically, Penn National is Vici's tenant now, but whatever money the casino makes, Penn National keeps. They're just paying a flat rent there. What's kind of weird about this is this is what's called a triple net lease, which I bet nobody here's ever heard of. You ever heard of a triple net lease before? I have not. No, I, I hadn't heard of it either. A triple net lease is where Penn National not only pays the rent, but they also pay for the maintenance, the building insurance, and the property taxes. So Vici sounds like they're getting a great deal because they don't have to maintain it, they don't have to insure it, and they don't have to pay taxes. In normal lease situations, these are all taken care of by the landlord. So there's some reasons that this would happen. Uh, the Because these additional responsibilities are on the tenant then they pay a lower base rent. And second, it gives them more control to where any... uh, They don't have to worry about having maintenance issues and, and Vici is doing a poor job maintaining the property. They don't have to worry about that happening. They They can control their own maintenance this way. So that's uh so it's it's when they do this they can feel more like they they have full control and ownership of the property even if they typically they they they, they technically don't own it. It becomes less of a of a matter of uh expecting somebody else to another you know another company to take care of things. So Vici what why they would do this is that they their their cash flow is more predictable this way. They don't have to worry about insurance costs going up, or or uh, an unexpected maintenance bill that's very high. So this way, they just know they're getting a certain amount of rent, and, and then that's it. And then a s- certain variable expenses, the other side's paying anyway, so they don't have to care about that. They just go, okay, we know we're getting this much per per year from these properties, and that's not really going to change. So that's that's who owns Greektown. It's going to be run and managed. The casino will be run and managed by, uh, and, and the casino portion will be owned by Greektown. The property, you know, the land, the building, that'll be owned by Vici. But Greektown will be running the whole show. I mean, Greektown, Penn National will be running the whole show. So that's what's going on in Detroit. I said it's the third largest casino in Detroit. What are the other two? Do you know? No clue. No clue. Okay, well, the largest one is the MGM Grand Detroit. And then the second largest one is the Motor City Casino and Hotel. I had always thought that uh, Greektown was second biggest. 
I didn't know that Motor City was bigger. I seem to hear about Motor City the least. I hear about probably I, I actually kind of heard about Greektown the most, but I I thought MGM Grand was probably the biggest, and then Greektown, and then Motor City was third. I don't know how they compare to. Uh, I don't know how they compare to Caesar Caesar's Windsor, which is pretty big. I was there once. But that's that's across into Canada, not geographically far. But you do have to drive into Canada, go through immigration, and uh, yeah, it can be a little bit slow. You have to go under the river, so it was a pain. When I I, I took a Detroit trip back in May of 2014, that was what I I, I actually went to D- Detroit for my Caesar's trip. They said, well, it's different. I haven't seen Detroit ever. So we went to Caesars Windsor for my Seven Stars trip and then drove into Detroit. And we actually took a driving tour of the ruins of Detroit. The old I was just about to ask that, but I couldn't yeah. hit mute on time. Yeah, of the, of the old buildings that have uh, old houses and, and businesses and buildings and, and uh the old post office, the train station, all these uh, w- factories, all these things that are completely abandoned there that have been for decades. And we drove by all of them. And we did it during the day. And it wasn't as scary as you think it would be. But there was one area I probably should have stayed away from. It's by what's known as the Packard plant. That was like the last thing we went to. Now, we were fine there, but it turned out that uh, two weeks earlier, I didn't know this at the time, uh, a tourist who got out of his car to take pictures of the Packard plant was murdered for his camera. And that's exactly what we did. We pulled up to the Packard plant and got out and took pictures. However, the tourist was not very smart. The tourist tried to fight for his camera and got shot dead. When a guy shows up with a gun asking for your camera, you just give it to him. You don't fight for your camera. That's not a smart thing to fight for. But someone did and they were dead. I guarantee if you see me taking a picture somewhere and you want my camera, pull a gun on me, I will give it to you. I'll probably call the police after you're gone, but uh, you will get my camera for the moment. I'm not, I'm not going to fight you for my camera if you pull a gun on me. All right, so the last topic we got here is just about the Dodgers game I went to. My first ever World Series game was 2017. First time the Dodgers made the World Series since 1988. I was only 16 back in 88. And I vowed then, when the Dodgers make it again, when I'm an adult, I'm going to go. And they didn't make it till I was 45 years old. I went to Game 6 of the World Series against Houston in 2017, and they won that game. I went to game three of the 2018 World Series against the Boston Red Sox at Dodger Stadium. The prior week, I was at Dodger Stadium myself to see the NLCS against the Milwaukee Brewers. And... The Dodgers won in 13 innings. 
It was the second longest Dodger game I had ever been to. So, when the World Series came up, I wanted to go again. I was afraid that prices would be prohibitively expensive. But when the Dodgers lost the first two games in Boston and were down 2-0 in the series, I said, okay, well, this is probably going to bring down the price. They also lost uh, one of the games in a very frustrating manner to where uh, I, I just felt that people would be kind of demoralized and it might bring down the price some. Also, because the Dodgers were in the World Series the previous year, uh, the novelty of it was not as great as it was the year before. However, the, the opponent was higher profile. The Red Sox were one of the highest profile teams in the Major League Baseball, whereas the Houston Astros aren't. So I was still afraid it was going to be really, really expensive. Well, the prices dropped like a rock because of the Dodgers being down 2-0. And they were still falling on the day of the game. Um, Benjamin really wanted to go to this game. And I had mixed feelings about it because... Benjamin, is he's kind of a moderate Dodgers fan. Uh, he doesn't watch it that much during the year. You know, I tell him about the Dodgers. He'll watch the end of games with me sometimes. He knows the players. But, you know, he's not a, a rabid Dodgers fan where, where uh, like, I feel he had to go. But but he does like, he always likes going to the games. And when I give him a choice, you know, what do you, what do you want to go or stay home? He always wants to go. If I say, in fact, he's disappointed if I don't take him. Now, the previous two games I had gone, I went to the NLDS this year with a friend, with a, a friend from a long time ago, and I went to the NLCS by myself. But both of these were on nights before school, so that's why he didn't go. It was uh, we were going to get back too late, and it just you know. There was a good reason why he didn't go. But the, but this uh, World Series Game 3 was on Friday night. So that wasn't the, an issue. So I couldn't just say, hey, Benjamin, no, you got to go to school tomorrow. So I'm thinking, well, I'd like to take him. It's just, it's just so expensive. Even if the prices come down, once you multiply it by two, it's a big difference. And I, I got good deals on both the NLDS and NLCS this year. And I always sit in good seats. I don't want to sit in crappy seats. I'd rather just stay home and watch it on TV. So I only want to go if I sit in good seats. So I was looking at seats, and I was kind of targeting uh, a certain type of seat on the loge level, which is the second level, which is still pretty good. It's still pretty low. I was targeting... And Benjamin, Benjamin didn't mind sitting in the bleachers alone? <laughs> <laughs> so I was targeting, okay, two seats in, in the loge level, but I didn't want to buy them yet. I wanted to buy them when they were at their lowest point. So I actually left the house with Benjamin to go, but didn't have seats yet. And I just was refreshing on my iPhone as I was driving and, and, and checking, you know, seeing, watching how the prices were going. And also watching how many, you know, the seats I wanted, how many were still available. And if either all of them disappeared, but but one pair I was going to buy it, or if, uh, when I say all of them, I don't mean all the seats in the stadium, I mean the ones I want to sit in. Um, or if the prices just stopped falling, then I'd buy it. So, refresh, refresh, refresh. <clears throat> I'm still seeing them go down, so I'm still driving. 
Then I saw in a different section on the field, pretty much the same place we were going to sit on the, on the load to the second level, but on the field level, the first level, I saw a great deal pop up. Someone who must have way lowered the price on their seats. And I said, well, I've got to take that. <laughs> it's a little more expensive, but the value of what I'm getting here, I'm getting a, a, a tremendously good field-level seat at the World Series, which last year I didn't even sit on the field level for the World Series. Tremendously good one. Because they, they now have this stupid fence that blocks the entire area between... It's a, fa- a foul fence to prevent foul balls and bats from hitting people. Uh, it extends all the way from first base to third base, and all the teams have it now. So that's ruined all those seats there. But this seat was just enough... It was on the first base side, but just enough to the right of the fence where the fence doesn't block anything. So you're not only not behind it, but the fence is enough to the side of you where it doesn't block anything, but you're close enough to the infield to where you're still at the infield. You're still by first base. You're not in the outfield anymore. So there's a perfect aisle to sit in. And it was it was like, uh, like like fifth row. So these were a tremendously, tremendously good deal on these seats. StubHub did something odd that day. They just I've never seen this before. They gave a ten percent discount for all seats of that game that were purchased. And the reason that's so huge is this discount actually came out of their profits. So they take about 23% fees out of each seat. So they're giving 10 of that back. They're almost giving back half their fees. I couldn't believe it. For that game only. Because it was selling so badly. I think they did that to kind of spur sales because they, they were selling so badly they felt that even by giving away half their fees, at least the, at least the tickets will sell faster and for a higher price. So that brought the tickets down, you know, ten percent. Plus, the tickets were just falling. And so, anyway, I got uh, I paid about six hundred dollars for each seat in that tremendously good location, which sounds like a lot, and it was a lot. I paid twelve hundred dollars to uh, attend the game. But can you imagine where the? I'm telling you, there's there's last year, for example, you couldn't get except for Game Six, where I got a tremendous deal at the last minute. You couldn't get the worst seat in the park for six hundred. You had to pay eight hundred to get the very worst seat in the park last year. This year, even for Games Four and Five, it was substantially more expensive. And even for that game, you couldn't get anywhere near there for six hundred. I I know people who paid four fifty, four hundred, who sat in crappy nosebleed seats for the same game. Here, I got you know really one of the best seats in the park. Now the game started at 5 p.m. and Benjamin's Benjamin's mom Ben had to go somewhere in the morning. And Ben's mom said, you know, he's got this important thing to do in the morning at at 9:30. Um, I saw last week you got home so late from the game. It, the game ended at 12:30 last week because it was 13 innings. What if this happens again? I said it's not going to happen again. Number one, of all the games I've attended in my life at Dodger Stadium, only one has been more than 10 innings. Or only two have been t- 10 innings. This 13-inning one and a 14-inning one back in 1986. That's it. So that shows you what a fluke that 13 innings was. Number two, this is starting earlier than the other game. This is starting an hour earlier. 
So don't worry. Even if it finishes, the, I think the other one finished at eleven something. I said like eleven thirty. I think that finished the one the week before the thirteen inning game. I said even if it, it's the same length, it'll be done at ten thirty. So, and that's like the latest, you know. But it's not going to go thirteen innings. I told her it's not going to happen again. I told her that the thirteen inning game was one of the longest playoff games of all time. Not the longest, but one of them. So I said that was a fluke. It's not going to happen. Well, I was right. It didn't happen. It wasn't a 13-inning game. It was an 18-inning game. I could not believe it. The game just kept going and going and going. And it was just kind of a, a slower game anyway. The game took 7 hours and 20 minutes. It went 18 innings, which is two full games. And in time... It's about two and a half full games because each game is usually three hours. Now, how did Benjamin hold up at an 18-hour game? Finished at 12, about 12.30 a.m., by the way. How did he hold up? Well, he was, he was good the whole way, and he was excited the whole way. In the bottom of the ninth inning, the Dodgers were tied. And basically, once you get to the bottom of the ninth... If the Dodgers are going to win the game, they're going to win in a walk-off. There's no other, there's no other way to win besides a walk-off, some kind of walk-off win. A walk-off meaning where the person uh, where where they just score and the game's over. Because once once the home team gets ahead in the ninth inning or later, the game's over. So basically, every moment is exciting in the bottom half of the ninth and beyond because the game can end at any time. Unless your team's way behind, if they're you know if they're down five runs, then then, then it's not exciting anymore. But <clears throat> Benjamin tells me in the bottom of the ninth, with the Dodgers having two men on board in a tie game, that he has to go to the bathroom. So I said, no, 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 no. He says, yeah, I have to go really, really badly. He has this habit of always like not telling me he has to go to the bathroom until it's an emergency. We have this when we're taking like road trips too. So I told him this is going to be a lesson to you. I said I'm not going to leave. I am not getting up and leaving to the bathroom in the World Series in the bottom of the ninth with two men on base. I'm not doing it. So I said you're going to have to hold it. So I felt bad for him. I wanted to see the Dodgers walk it off and win, but they weren't. And the inning took so long. It took forever to end the inning from that point. I felt bad for him, but this was his fault. So as soon as the Dodgers got out, we sprinted up there. And fortunately, the bathroom was right above our section, so there was no line. And he went. So that with that crisis over, we're in the 10th inning. And he was still in good spirits until around the 13th inning, and he started getting really tired. And he had gotten up at 6.30 a.m. that day. So it was, it was late. He had been there a long time. He had been up at 6.30 a.m. And kids need more sleep than adults do. Like, there's a lot of adults that just get six hours of sleep every night. They're fine. Uh, Kids can't do that. Benjamin is eight years old. The average eight-year-old is supposed to get ten hours of sleep. And it's not just supposed to. Like, if he were to get eight hours every night, he would... would, uh, you know, he could do it for a night or two, but if he were to do this, like, consistently, he'd be exhausted all the time. Just kids need more sleep. Their, their bodies are just different. They need more sleep. 
So he had been up since 6.30 a.m., so he really was up a lot of hours for a kid and was getting very tired. In the 13th, he actually fell asleep in the top of the 13th as the Red Sox got a hit. Two to one. I tried to wake him from the bottom of the 13th, where I thought was going to be the Dodgers probably losing the game and being down 3-0 in the series. But he was so exhausted, I couldn't even get him awake. But I definitely wasn't leaving. I'd, I'd, I'd leave him sleeping in the seat there. I'm not, I'm not leaving the World Series here in the, in the extra innings. So he was awakened by the Dodgers scoring the tying run in the 13th while the cheering. He said, oh, what happened? So the Dodgers just... Uh, just scored, so that kind of woke him up for a little bit. So, oh, well, he did. And so he was, uh, so he was cheering with everybody, even though he didn't see what happened. The Dodgers unfortunately did not score again and moved to the 14th. Well, on the top of the 14th, again, he's kind of tired, he's in a bad, bad mood again. And I'm thinking, oh boy, you know, I, I hope this ends soon because Ben is, uh, he's pretty much out here. He, he didn't fall asleep, but he was kind of not in the best spirits on the top of the 14th. Top of the 14th ends, and they say. Ladies and gentlemen, please rise for the 14th inning stretch. Trade Risky, have you heard of a 14th inning stretch before? I haven't. I haven't. It no, makes it, sense. It, it doesn't really exist, but the 7th inning stretch in baseball takes place after the top of the 7th inning for everybody to stand up, to stretch, and to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Because very few games ever go 14 innings, uh, this doesn't even come up, but uh, the Dodgers, seeing how long the game had already gone, both in innings and time, because it was not only 14 innings, it was a slow 14 innings. The Dodgers introduced, they made up a 14th inning stretch, because 14 is double of 7. And Ben was so excited about the 14th inning stretch. He thought that was so funny. The 14th inning stretch, what is this? Uh, why are they doing a 14th inning stretch, Daddy? He was he was so excited about the 14th inning stretch, and he loved it. And this put him in such good spirits and brought on a second win. So uh, he was wide awake for the bottom of the 14th, the 15th, the 16th, then the 17th. He started to get tired again, but not that bad. Then we get to the top of the 18th, and he was exhausted and fell asleep again. So I, I, I told him I would wake him up in the bottom of the 18th. I'd let him sleep when the, the Red Sox were at bat. Now, now we're getting near 12.30 a.m. So Dodgers come up in the bottom of the 18th. Max Muncy's up, and Max Muncy had almost hit a home run the previous at bat. And I was thinking, I wonder if he's going to do that. I wonder if he's going to, is the same pitcher was still in. I wonder if he's going to really hit him this time and end the game. So when the ball left Max Muncy's bat, the second it left his bat, I knew that it was over. So I quickly grabbed Benjamin. I was like, Benjamin, wake up, look. And he, 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 he sat up and he saw the ball fly over the wall. Which is good. I got I got him up in time to see. He didn't see leave the bat, but he got to see the ball going over the wall and, and then the all the excitement. So awesome. Eighteen innings in the books. Dodgers win the only game they won in the World Series that they went on to lose the series four to one. They lost the next two home games, including the awful game four where they were ahead four nothing in the seventh and lost. So 
that uh, that was a uh, it was a disaster. <laughs> the World Series for the Dodgers, but that game, that one game, was not very very long. So it was the longest game to ever play in Dodger Stadium. Dodger Stadium has hosted fifty-seven seasons. And never has a game gone 18 innings in Dodger Stadium. Playoff or otherwise. In time, or sorry, that was, that was the longest in time, in 7 hours, 20 minutes. It was the second longest in innings. There was a 19-inning game in 1973, a regular season game, but that only went like five and a half hours somehow. That was the only longer game at Dodger Stadium in its history. And in, in time, no game had ever run 7 hours, 20 minutes in Dodger Stadium history. In World Series history of any team, no game has ever run that long, either in innings or in time. So it set all kinds of records that game. That is a record that probably won't be broken for a long time. You know, there's not that many World Series games, so how long do you think it'll be until another game goes 18 innings in the World Series? I don't think I'm going to see it. I don't mean in person. I mean, I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime. It may not happen in Benjamin's lifetime. Uh, it's possible in 100 years they'll still be talking about the record World Series game in 2018. So when I told people I was at that game, they are actually jealous. They're like, oh, wow, you were at a historic game. And I was glad that of the three home games that I was at the one they won. I have attended 10 Dodgers postseason games since 2013. The record... Of the Dodgers in those 10 games I've attended, the 10 postseason games since 2013, 10 and 0. The Dodgers have won all 10 games that I have attended in the playoffs since 2013. And that encompasses the whole 2010s because the Dodgers did not make the playoffs in 2010, 11, or 12. So the entire decade of the 2010s, I've been to 10 playoff games. 10 to know the Dodgers are. Now you may say, well, maybe the Dodgers are just always winning at home. No. The Dodgers have played a total of 31 home playoff games in the 2010s. I told you 10 to know what the ones I've been at. The other 21, they are 9 and 12. That's pretty amazing. They only won 9 of the other 21, but they won all 10 that I went to. They should be paying me to attend. I keep telling people, whenever I go, they win in the playoffs. Can you imagine the other side of this? Can you imagine if I went to 10 playoff games and they've lost every, all 10? Like, I probably wouldn't be going anywhere. Did you have action on all of them? No, I had action on none of them. I, I don't like that complicating the experience. Yes, I could bet for them, and that just makes me root. For, you know, you could say that makes me root for them high, hard, harder. But I just want to be like a pure Dodger fan experience. I don't, I don't need to complicate it with with, uh, with betting on that. I usually don't bet on the Dodgers. Okay, I made a few bets involving unders, and even that I hate because then I had to root for them not to score. So I just don't like betting on them much for that reason. Kind of take some enjoyment out of just appreciating it. So, um, I actually thought I wasn't going to be going to a, a, a World Series game. I thought it was going to be too expensive, but I actually got a better deal than last year. A better seat, paid less, paid less per ticket. I only w- I went by myself last year, so overall I paid less, but paid less per ticket. 
And <clears throat> look, I, I want to tell you guys about attending baseball games. And ba- basketball to some degree too, but especially baseball because the stadiums are bigger. This is not just the Dodgers. This is every single team. Okay? Do not, do not, do not buy tickets in advance. Advance meaning don't buy the day before, two days before, a week before. Don't do it. Don't do it. Wait until the day of the game. Why? Because you will get the best deal by far. You may say, well, what if they sell out? No. On these sites like StubHub, there will always be seats available. They will never all sell out. And you need to keep telling yourself that. This will not sell out. This will not sell out. Even if they say it's a sellout, StubHub still will have seats. StubHub will have seats. StubHub will have seats. Keep telling yourself that over and over before you make that purchase and spend too much money. I, I told a friend about this. He went to the same game I did. He paid 400 something per seat. I think he went with his daughter. Paid 400 something per seat for really crappy seats. They were in the load level, but they were way off in the corner by the foul pole. It was, I, I see, he took a picture. They were really crappy. <clears throat> I told him beforehand not to do this. I told him, wait until the day of. And then he posted on Facebook... Okay, I just bought these seats. You know, I, I, I know I should have waited, but I just—I I was so afraid the game you know, that there wouldn't be any left. I was like, no, that's the whole point. You—that's you, why everybody makes these stupid purchases at a bad deal. There will always be seats left in every section, pretty much. So just wait, wait until the deal's the best, because it's funny. Like I'm sitting in these seats now. Six hundred dollars a seat—is that—is that a lot of money? Of course it is. But I'm sitting here in my $600 seat in one of the best seats in the park and I'm looking around the stadium at people in much worse seats than me. Much worse. And not just a matter of opinion. I mean on an absolute basis, a much worse seat. And I'm looking up and going, these people paid the same of what I did or, or, or only a little bit less. And look where I am and look where they are. I look like I'm the I'm the baller. I look like I'm the rich guy down here and they look like they're the ones who, who you know are sitting in the budget seats and we paid near the same. So don't make that mistake. This is how I do it every year. This is how I get the great seats. By the way, in the, in the NLDS, um, I paid in like like a hundred eleven dollars and got great seats in the field. Uh, the NLCS, I, I, I had a very good load seat. For $168 in the second round there. Again, far less than what most people paid for comparable seats. And and about equivalent to what a lot of people paid for for nosebleed seats. So every time I go to these playoff games, I I sit in the type of seats that look like they're super expensive and aren't. Because of when I buy them. So you can do it too. Just requires patience, timing, and just knowing it's not going to sell out. That even works with basketball too. It works with pretty much any sport. NFL, I don't know because NFL is not as many games. Concerts too. Con- concerts are a little bit funny. Yeah, it can work like that. You know where I got burned, and <laughs> I'm sorry. Tom Petty 
when he came the last time he came to Los Angeles. And I figured that uh, he was there on like a Thursday, Friday, and Monday, I think he was doing the concerts. And I thought, okay, I wanted to go Monday, and I figured Monday was going to be the cheapest because all the people who wanted to see him are going to rush over there Thursday and Friday, and and Monday is going to be the best deal. So I was looking at the prices on Thursday, and they were very reasonable. And if you, you know, wait kind of towards the last minute again, you get much better seats. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do the same thing. Just do it on Monday. So then Friday was more expensive than Thursday. I'm like, okay, well, that's because it's a better night to go Friday than, than Thursday. But I'm sure Monday, after all the big fans will have gone already, it's going to be much cheaper. I look Monday. It, it was terrible. It was super expensive. And I said, forget it. <laughs> so I didn't go. And uh, now I'll never go. But now I was supposed to go that Thursday. Then just didn't. Brutal. At first I thought it was just like he had bad luck and had a heart attack, but I I believe it was drug-related. I think I read that later. It was. Yeah. I don't know. Some people, they're just not careful. They just don't watch out. You know, they don't... uh, I'm kind of the opposite. I'm, I'm so afraid to put things in my body that I think I have a bad reaction. That's why I'm, I'm dreading this thing with a, the treatment for the H. pylori. Because I know a bad reaction is very possible from it. Like a lot of people get bad reactions. Like, oh, I don't want to feel like I have a, a bad flu for two weeks. But some people, they just say, like, hey, here, take this. Okay. You know, that's, uh, I'm talking about the recreational drugs now, not, not medication. At least medication, you need it. But if you're going to do recreational drugs, at least at least be aware of what you're taking and what the danger is. So many of these celebrities die of, uh, from uh, drugs. It's amazing. Anyway, people, this is that's it. Uh, if you hear from me on this, sh- if I do another show in like a week, then that's a good sign. That means I'm not having a bad reaction to the medication. Uh, if you don't, then it, it probably isn't a good sign. It probably means I've, I'm, I'm suffering. I remember how I felt the last time I had an actual bad flu and it was awful. And I remember thinking, well, at least it's going to pass within a few days. And, uh. So we're getting a call in here. See, this is what's ridiculous. This is, I have a call coming in that says, answering this call will place your active call on hold. I, I, I'm not going to answer anyway. Because Give I, it a shot, Draft. Test it for future no, shows. No, I see. It's going to put it, it's going to put it on hold. I, I, I've got, I'm, I'm done talking anyway. My, uh, my throat hurts too much. Yeah. So it's, so I see from Skype, what it looks like here is it looks like people can't call in. This is really frustrating. It looks like people can't call in with me without me having to cut off the co-hosts. But I can conference other people on myself. This really sucks, though. And and, they, and they've changed it all. Like, they've just... But once you answer it, you can't patch them in? No, I think it's I think it's like two separate calls. I think it's like answering a call and call waiting. It, it's, it's really crap. Mm. It, I've had this before, but I, I'm able to sometimes get around it. I'll have to play with this Skype. I was just forced recently to, to upgrade here. I was de- delaying it as much as possible. 
Anyway, uh, Trader Risky, thank you for joining us. Uh, sadly, Calwatt never woke up. He must have been in a deep sleep. He said he woke up at 6.30 a.m., so that's why he wasn't able to make it. But, uh, you know, I'll have the next show when I can. Uh, this show's been pretty long here. It's, it's wow. This is, I, I just kind of kept going. But I think I, I, we're, we're, oh, boy. Did I really almost do this for five hours? <laughs> I think I did. Well, crap, I didn't mean to do that. That's oh, was that? Did I miss the first hour? Well, I started at eight something. Mine says four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. four and a half. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's, that's like yeah, a, probably four and a half. That's like, like an old school show. I can't do this. It's not good for me. Okay. Well, I did it. It's in the books now. So, thank you, Trey Yaruski. Thank you, Jeff. Good luck with everything the next couple weeks. Yeah, I I hope. I hope that I'm able to come and report that I've seen improvement after this treatment's over. I hope I'll be able to report that, wow, I, I, this is it. I think I, I figured it out. I think this is it. I think I've cured it. I can't hear you, Jeff. I don't know if that's me. Oh, it's, it's the music. It's, it's, it's the old Skype problem with the music. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. All right, then shalom. Have a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, you too. And I will touch. I'll touch you later. Okay. Or call me about the thing you wanted. Yeah, I, call I, me tomorrow because I'm, I'm going. Today. No problem. I'll talk to you tomorrow. All right. Thanks, Dad. All right, Jeff. By the way, you people didn't know this, but I've actually been in Las Vegas during this show. I'm in Las Vegas right now. I'm actually I'm looking not over the strip. I'm facing the other way, but I'm, I'm facing kind of the the other side. I'm on the strip though. I am. I'm here in Las Vegas on the strip. That's where I've done the show. It's kind of a secret here during the show. <laughs> you, you thought I was in California, didn't you? I kind of gave it away at one point. We're talking about here when I was talking about Las Vegas. You guys can't even call me in the room during my show now. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm in a hotel I've never been in when I've done radio. I've been in this hotel before. I've never done radio from this hotel before. So it's not Caesars. It's not Rio. It's not Harris. It's, it's not any of those. It's not the Golden Nugget. I've done radio from there, too. It is not the Venetian. I've done radio from there, too. Where is it? Mm, you'll have to guess. It's on the strip. And I'm there. Yep. Well, thank you for listening. Those who were missing long shows, here it is. I don't think I'm going to do this again. I, I'm not supposed to talk for five hours straight. It's not It's not right for what's going on with me. I'll try to do another show soon, or as soon as I can, as soon as this... H. pylori treatment is over and hopefully I don't have a terrible reaction to it. Hopefully it doesn't screw me up further. Good night. Shalom. <laughs>